0: we are at the big moment, best picture of the year. And 1968 was really a vintage year for motion pictures. The winner is Oliver.
1: Soon,
2: the whole world will fall in love with Oliver, the sound so the style. It not have the spectacle gone. of the International Musical Stage on. Triumph. If now, the gone. screen brings to life
3: oh. Oliver, the Artful
2: Dodger, Fagin, Bill Sykes, Mr. Bumble, Nancy. Oh,
3: for Oliver!
1: those wondrous tunes! Blue, 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 blue,
4: blue. Shama people and welcome to our 41st episode of Gold Standard, the Oscars movie podcast where we travel through time reviewing the films that earn their gold statue or standard, if you will. I'm one of your co-hosts, DJ Nick, and as always joining me at the Gold Standard Theatre are my two podcasting partners in crime. On one side, the lady who recently introduced her husband to that cinematic classic that is The Princess Bride, Rachel Friend. Hey Rachel, how are you? Happy New Year and thanks for doing that.
2: Yeah, it has taken years for him to sit down long enough for me to show him that movie. And thankfully, it was worth the wait because he really, really liked it.
4: (laughs) Well, I'm glad he did because you know what? Had he not, him and I would probably have had words when he gets on the podcast. I'm just saying. Forget Mm. the
2: battle of wits. It would have been a battle of words. (laughs)
4: very very well said (laughs) and on the other the lady who may someday head to finland to attend the heavy metal knitting competition
3: zan sprouse hey zan how are you and happy new year happy new year yeah i'm gonna have to learn how to knit before i do that but it sounds so fun (laughs)
4: well you know what you could probably take some pointers from rachel i guess who's our knitter in the group i think
2: no, I don't knit. <laughs> oh, you don't? <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> oh,
4: okay, okay. But, uh, but yeah, it's, um, it's it seems like amazing. Yeah, people basically, um, from what I gathered, Zan, it's people knitting on stage while they're listening to heavy metal. Is that the, the gist of it?
3: Yeah, and I think some of it, there's a speed knitting component to it as well. Oh, wow. Okay. Where it's, <laughs> it's not just the the knitting to the metal, it's the metal being... So it's speed or thrash, and you're kind of knitting to the beat, I guess. And part of it is this, there is a speed component as well. So,
4: wow. Well, I mean, uh, definitely have to hand those fo- hand it to those folks for that their manual dexterity, I suppose. Uh, I you know definitely- when it's
3: dark for like four months, you got to do something.
4: This is very, very true. And uh, ladies, today we are joined in the Gold Standard Theatre by a a fantastic gentleman, a conductor, composer, pianist and avid cinephile, Mr. James Brown. Hey, James, how are you? And welcome to Gold Standard.
0: Thank you for having me. I'm doing very well today. Thank you for, for checking in. It's a crazy time where I am right now, so I appreciate it.
4: Well, we're very, very happy to have you with us indeed. And as I said, you're definitely a man of many, many talents for sure, James. So uh, it's a great, great stuff indeed. Uh, so guys, today we are reviewing Oliver, directed by Carol Reed, who my listeners might know for The Third Man and Odd Man Out. It was, of course, based on the musical Oliver by Lionel Bart, and of course, Oliver Twist by a certain Charles Dickens. The screenplay was by Vernon Harris, and the songs naturally were by Lionel Bart, while the film score was by John Green and but to put today's money, this movie cost $76 million to make and made 586 million at the box office opening on September the 26th of 1968 and has a runtime of roughly two hours and 30 minutes. So starting here with first impressions, James, as you are, are our guest, what are your general impressions or what were your general impressions when it comes to Oliver?
0: Yeah, so I I might be uh, atypical here. I, I'm curious to hear all your thoughts, but I'm a fan of Oliver. I know it kind of has a hard reputation as a Best Picture winner, mm-hmm. and I see where people are coming from, especially when you consider that 2001, A Space Odyssey was not even nominated in 1968 for Best Picture. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have Oliver actually winning. Um, But I think on its own terms, it's it's perfectly entertaining. I think there was a lot going on in the 60s, especially near the end of the decade. And I think Oliver is the perfect reprieve um, from all of what was going on in the world. So I'm a big fan. I'm gonna I'm gonna be the supporter of Oliver today. (laughs) Awesome. I mean, are you a fan of the the subject
4: matter? I mean, would you consider yourself a fan of Dickens in general? I mean, have you had a chance
0: to read Oliver Twist or even other novels of Dickens's? I've read some Dickens, not Oliver Twist, unfortunately. So I I have no comparison between between those two uh, uh, realms of the story. Mm, okay. And uh,
4: Rachel when it comes to you you being the our musical fan of course mm. of the group what did you make of Oliver?
2: Um well I I really didn't know a whole lot going into it. I mean I've never I've never read the book. I've never seen any other adaptation uh, of course I know Please and What's the more, uh cuz everybody <laughs> knows that. Uh but <laughs> beyond that I really did not know what I was getting myself into. I didn't know what we were looking at as far as you know because it says musical but we've seen a wide variety of things that call themselves a musical i'm looking at you going my way um that aren't really a musical uh so um i just i was not entirely sure i was genuinely amused by this Mm. Uh, granted it takes some twists and turns as charles dickens is wont to do um, which we'll talk about that when we talk about the individual characters and the way this ended, because some of the characters get done dirty. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, as, as soon as like the overture at the beginning started, I'm like, oh, this is kind of catchy. And we'd like get right into it with the boys singing about food. And I'm like, okay, I, I kind of might be here for this. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Awesome. Yeah, because, I mean, I know that you, obviously, on, on The Five-ish fangles, you guys had obviously discussed The Christmas Carol, and you said you weren't familiar with the Oliver Twist novel, but um, I sper- had you read any any other stuff by Dickens, The Great Expectations, or stuff no, like that? No, I have not. And, uh, Zan, when it comes to you, what are your general thoughts on this?
3: Well, I was interested in watching what a G-rated movie that has Oliver Reed could possibly be, because that's not (laughs) the only two things that I would put in the same sentence. And the more I thought about it, I thought it was interesting that this is the first time a G-rated movie that was not retroactively rated G won an Oscar. And next year we have our only X-rated movie to win an Oscar. So Mm -hmm. there there are these opposing (laughs) factors for 1968 and 1969. As far as this musical goes, it's fine. It's not my favorite. It has that British thing that I can't stand that we talked a lot about during Tom Jones of blaming someone for something they have no control over. Mm-hmm. The The fact that he's mistreated so much simply because his mother was down on her luck and essentially the type of character who should be singing I Dreamed a Dream to Dream that she has to have a child in a poorhouse, and now this child is branded this horrible, no good. What's the point? Let's mistreat him and not feed him properly. And I don't like that. That's difficult for me. But then I started to realize that I really loved Annie as a kid, mm-hmm. and I never quite realized how much from Oliver was taken to be part of Annie because Annie was, of course, based on the comic strip, but. They, the writers used elements of other things like Oliver, um, you know, food, glorious food is very, it's a hard knock life. It's like, here's what we want to be eating, but here's what we are eating. Mm -hmm. And the, where is love song reminds me a lot of maybe from Annie and consider yourself as kind of, I'm going to like it here. Just, you know, being welcomed by a, by a new crew. Um, Oliver, Oliver's mother had, gave him a locket as a baby. Annie's parents gave her a locket as a baby. So I'm thinking, (laughs) This is really interesting how many elements of this that I was aware of, but not aware of. And that was interesting to me. As far as the music goes, some of it, it's about half catchy and the other half I'm not a huge fan of. Um, the, the Who Will Buy song, I just thought that was an awful lot of time to spend with people we never really see again.
2: <laughs> right.
3: Like, okay, that's great, Milkmaids, but what are we What are we doing here? Um, they really
2: just wanted to show off the fact that they recreated that particular town square that actually did exist in complete detail to scale. That's
3: exactly what they were doing. They said, look, we built this damn thing. I don't care what you have to do. You write a song. We're taking over six sound stages for this movie, we Never going to use every inch of it. Damn it, we're using it. give me, me hundreds of people. I want all the Milkmaids you can find. Just get me whoever you can get me. Um... So the songs aren't, this isn't one of those things that I'm thinking like, oh yeah, that's right. This is from this and this, oh, I love this song. I'm like, oh yeah, this song. There's not a lot of music in this that I absolutely adore. Again, we have a situation where we have a main character who's not singing, which I talk about all the time is being very strange to me. And that's the one thing that really struck me about this story is that out of all the characters, I feel like we see Oliver the least. Mm, yeah. This really isn't about Oliver. This is about how Oliver affects other people. Because we see him ask for more food. He Well, we see him say that there's got to be something better out there. What is love? He asks for food. He goes to work for The Undertaker. That doesn't work. He walks to London. He gets in with the Artful Dodger. He tries to pick a pocket, but it goes poorly. He meets up with probably what we find out later is his great uncle. And that's about it. But... He, you really don't see Oliver doing a lot on his own. He's being dragged around by other people, you know, come, you know, come here boy. And, you know, he asks for more food cause he loses the bet and that's about it. And then, okay, you're, you're kicked out boy for sale. Okay. Uh, why are you so insolent? Get in the coffin. Then you see him walking and then he meets the artful Dodger and then it becomes the artful Dodger show. I mean, the artful Dodger is so much more of a gregarious character and then we meet Fagin, and we meet Bill Sykes, and then we meet his uncle, and it is wonderful to watch him sitting there and looking at the people outside his window and realizing, hey, I've woken up in a nice room with clean sheets, and there are people selling the food that I keep talking about how much I want, <laughs> but we really don't get a lot of Oliver. Even, even his story that we get about him is told from the perspective of his uncle where they have that conversation where he notices the the painting oh she's pretty yeah she is hmm she ran away around the time you would have been born and he has and brownlow has that conversation with someone else yeah. not necessarily oliver so i thought that was really interesting that this is more of a movie about I think we joked about this last time, but I think Oliver and Company is a better title for this. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. It's more
2: about the company he it's keeps. It's the out. world of Oliver Twist. Yeah, it's
3: Oliver's <laughs> world. It's how he affects Fagin. It's how he affects Nancy. It's how he affects Mr. Brownlow. It's how he turns Bill Sykes into a complete and total raging psychopath. It's really not much about him. He's just kind of going where he's dragged. And I wonder if that's intentional, though. Probably is, but it just wasn't what I was expecting. Right. You know, I was expecting a story about this little kid who, from meager beginnings, becomes, and that's not what happens at all. And granted, I did not read this book. Um, I, I, I know enough about it to maybe pass a test. Um, mm. The only Dickens I've ever read is Great Expectations and A Christmas Carol. Mm. But so I never. But I think I just I, I expected more Oliver. It surprised me that this was mm. more about you know, the, co- the Oliver and company than it is more about Oliver.
4: <laughs> and I actually rewatched Oliver and company after years, just to kind I I of, <laughs> <laughs> I literally went on an, on an Oliver twist fugue, to Because I'd watched the other versions in the past, but I want to refresh my memory. I watched uh, the David Lean version, obviously Rachel's favorite director. <laughs> then, I went, then I went on to watch the Roman Polanski version. I watched Oliver and Company and so on. And it's interesting that um, you bring up um, Great Expectations, Zan, because even there, one of the main characters, Pip, is very much... Uh, should we say it's a typical Dickensian character like Oliver Twist is very much a Dickensian character where you have the boy who comes from nothing who then you know gets a happy ending if you will because you get that also to a certain extent in in, um, uh, David Copperfield you Mm -hmm. get it also somewhat I guess in The Christmas Carol with Tiny Tim. Dickens loves I think these should we say Orphan characters, if you will, these poor downtrodden characters who get their happy ending, and I think it's a, it's very much as a Dickensian thing. And this was actually one of my favourite musicals growing up as a child, and one I actually would often watch with my grandma when I was visiting her in Brighton. So of course it brought back a lot of fond memories, and it doesn't hurt. As I said, I enjoy Dickens as an author. And fun fact. He's one of the few who actually repented when it came to his anti-Semitism in Oliver Twist. And I will get to that when we do get to a certain redheaded Jew in this. So (laughs) there was a lot to love. I mean, I do have some issues with this, this film, especially when it comes to the ending compared to how it was changed from the novel. But all in all, this is my kind of musical. So let's start off here by discussing the boy who puts the title in this musical, Mr. Mark Lester as Oliver Twist my listeners might know from Prince and the Pauper, and these days is an osteopath and acupuncturist as he retired from acting in the 80s while his singing voice was provided by Kathy Green, who, surprise, surprise, was John Green's daughter, the guy who scored this film. And uh, Kathy actually did enjoy a brief singing career herself in the 70s.
0: So, James, starting with you, what did you make of our protagonist? (laughs) that's a funny question because like zan was saying there isn't a whole lot to make out of him is there (laughs) yeah he's he's a pretty passive agent in his own narrative um and i think mark lester looks the part he's he's cute he's uh he's precocious he he gets the job done but there isn't a lot of depth there and and i don't think that's a bad thing i don't think uh, I, I don't think we needed Oliver to be to be vibrant or rich. We needed him to be a conduit into this this side of Victorian England or early Victorian England or London. Um, Mark Lester is fine. Mark Lester is fine. Mm. And
4: when it came to this, the singing part, I mean, did you buy, uh, should we say, Kathy Green's voice coming from Mark Lester's mouth?
0: I did actually. This is I, I did very little research before I uh, came on here, and I am learning for the first time now that Mark Lester was dubbed by by uh, the the scorer's daughter. Um, so I give him credit for that. I think his his youthful boyish uh, appearance totally matches the the vocal quality we get um, from his uh, from his uh, singing dub, and and it works. Like where is love? I think is one of the the key moments of the movie and and it works it it resonates that's the song that people remember and and for good reason it's it's very sweet it's sweetly done in in the context of the film mm, for
4: sure and zan what did you make of uh of of oliver i mean you also mentioned the fact that he's the only character pretty much who doesn't isn't he doesn't do his own singing
3: right and i did buy it because you do have that Boys choir characteristic to that voice the the those um falsetto boys choir singers they sound very feminine and so to have you know a young adult woman doing a preteen boy makes sense you know we've we've seen that before sure. um so yeah I definitely I definitely bought it and he is just an angelic looking child you know if this movie had been made thirty years before it would have been Roddy McDowell. Um, He has that sort of angel face, the way Roddy looks in How Green Was My Valley. And I think that really serves the character very well. Because like we said, there's not much to this character. Everything about this character unfolds through other people. And he... And I don't know if this was an intentional thing. But there's almost a foreshadowing to him. About how proper he is. Mm-hmm. He's he has a, a, you know it, which is which is funny because it's not like he was raised by his mother. <laughs> his mother exactly. died in childbirth. His father ran off, and he was raised in the same poorhouse and workhouse that all the other kids were. But all the other kids are kind of these little Cockney neer do wells, and he's this very sweet, proper. Even when he loses the bet and he has to say, please, sir, I may have some more. He's very proper about it. Yeah. And he's so innocent in that he's surprised by everything that happens to him. Even when he's being taken through the streets with boy for sale. He's just not even sure what to do. He's just, okay, I'm going to have to figure this out when it happens. He's not trying to run away. He's not trying to you know, kick his way out of the situation, which I think maybe the Artful Dodger might have done something like that. And then he gets angry when someone badmouths his mother, even though he really doesn't know much about her. He just knows that, like we all know, this is no reason to outcast somebody. It takes two to tango. She's She didn't get pregnant by herself, okay? She ran off with the wrong guy, and then he ran off on her, and then she was stuck holding the bill, and to blame Oliver for that and to blame her for that is ridiculous. It's a ridiculous concept. And it was something we still see to it's something we still see today but something we see a lot again like I said we talked about this in Tom Jones. It is not Tom Jones's fault he's a bastard. Right. Same thing with Oliver. It's not Oliver's fault he was born to a woman in the workhouse who then died. That doesn't make him the spawn of satan or something or a bad seed and I think His angelic appearance and his innocent appearance and his willingness to get along with anyone who's not bad-mouthing him or his mother, how he is so happy to be welcomed by the Artful Dodger and Fagin and all those kids. And, you know, he's happy to meet Nancy and he's happy to meet what we find out is his uncle. And the scene where he's just staring out the window, looking at all of the, you know, during the Who Will Buy scene where he's looking at everyone just realizing that there can be a ni- there's a nicer way of living that people can be nicer to each other and when you add all that up together it really makes you realize how ridiculous this system was this concept of okay this boy is no good why because he is because i said so because well because his mother was poor he's in the poorhouse of course he's a terrible child and you really start to dislike that system. You dislike those people. You know, when you, um, when you think about Mr. Bumble, you're like, okay, you suck. Um, you're a terrible person. And and then when you look at the governor's eating actual feasts of roasted meats and vegetables, and then these kids are eating essentially watered down oatmeal, you're like, okay, you are all terrible people. And, I think that's a lot of what Dickens was saying in a lot of his books where you, like you said, Nick, uh, there's a, there's a pattern of meager beginnings to, to, uh, you know, to outstanding adulthood that this shouldn't matter. The fact that my mother happened to have sex out of wedlock is not my problem. The fact that I was born into a system that knows how to send its orphans up a chimney rather than care for them. That's not my fault. I shouldn't be blamed for this. I shouldn't be judged for this. And we're talking about children. We're talking about very kind, loving, innocent children that are being treated like crap by a system that is judging them on completely arbitrary rules that were made up by God knows who. Probably Henry VIII. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I think that the, the casting, you know, Mark Lester's perfect because he is that angelic little, because even he's so the, um, Jack Wilde said that he was really, that, that Mark Lester was very coddled during this production, that he was kept inside to make sure he was pale. Like <laughs> <laughs> they really wanted him pale blonde. So even if he got a speck of dirt on him, he was going to look dirtier than all the other kids. Um, but yeah, he, the, the main thing about Oliver is he really shows you what we're losing in a system like this that just discards its poor or discards its undesirable, and I'm doing air quotes when I say that, you know, because again, we have a situation in this that's very, that's very lame Mis, you know, where his his mother is... Essentially, Fontine from Les Mis is what it sounds like. She meets a guy. She runs away. She's too ashamed to go back home after she gets pregnant. She dies in childbirth. And then we have a child that has to either live in a, the workhouse or live with horrible people that treat them horribly. And that's that's a horrible way of treating people who didn't do anything wrong. I mean, it's a horrible way of treating anybody, frankly, but... This is a child that didn't do anything wrong and it just cast it off as, oh, it's just another one of those no Nicks put him in the workhouse and the um and even that even the choices he has when he's with when he's with Fagin's group. I mean, as we all know, I mean, when you grow up in that group, you turn out to be Bill Sykes. I mean, it's not a great future. So it's a system that begets itself. <laughs> <laughs> that by staying, you know, by staying along this course, you're just going to keep breeding this same type of you know, if you're going to call someone a no good Nick by at birth, they're going to become a no good Nick and they're going to end up swinging from the rafters after you shot them.
1: Mm-hmm. And
3: Oliver, I think, I think Oliver is a perfect example of a character that might not have a lot of substance to himself, but really shows you what the collateral damage of the system around you is doing. And unfortunately, Oliver starts out as the collateral damage of this ridiculous system.
0: So I w- I'm just wondering if because I agree with everything you're saying, but I kind of have an extra layer of, of of Oliver being a conduit for all of the commentary around everything you're mentioning. And I'm kind of wondering in your opinion if you think uh, Charles Dickens or the movie itself goes out of its way enough to show that, yes, everything you're seeing is is condemning this system, is not approving of the way things are people are being treated. Do you see that as commentary, or do you see it not being commentary enough?
3: Well, I, I see it as, uh, I, I do think it's kind of subtle. I think you kind of have to really think about it, because you don't really see a lot of punishment for, like, you know, Bumble and his wife, you know, when we when we find out that, wait a minute, what if, why did you keep this necklace this whole time? What the hell's wrong with you? You know, we really don't see a lot of punishment for them. You know, we don't see... The workhouse is closing, stuff like that. So I, I think it is very, and of course it didn't. I mean, historically we can't we can't have that because it didn't. But I do think it's a commentary from Dickens because, again, that's a that's a common storyline throughout a lot of his stories, and it's that idea that these are our, you know, our heroes are not Bumble or the Judge or the the undertakers that take them in the the what are they sourberry yeah
4: the sourberries yeah
3: yeah the sourberries you don't th- that's not our that's not our heroes the heroes are the kid who came from this or the other little pickpocket kids or nancy who gives her life to to save oliver because it's the right thing it's the right thing to do but you know nancy grew up as a pickpocket also so it's this idea that even what we, you know, what the upper crust would think of as the dregs of society, that's where your good people are. That's where your thoughtful people are. And I, I definitely think that that is a, I think that's intentional. I th- I th- it might be subtle, but I definitely think it's intentional.
0: Yeah. And I think in showing the villains, quote unquote, like the judge and the magistrate and the, the I forget their names already, the the coffin people. The sowberries, yeah. The sowberries, thank you. Um they they're kind of portrayed as like almost like uh like silly and incompetent and, and and a little clueless. And I wonder if that in itself oh, the is commentary too. Like they're just incompetent people. The system is incompetent, the fact that they're privileged is unearned, and and that even though Oliver isn't necessarily glorified or nobody's punished, in portraying them in a certain way, that in itself is the commentary.
3: I think that I think so, especially with the judge, where we have that scene where but this has already been ruled upon, hasn't it? like he doesn't even know what he <laughs> just did two minutes ago, and you know again, shout out to Hugh Griffith the drunk. Yes. It's yeah. fantastic taking a drink at the uh um when he's when he's up at his uh <laughs> when he's about to preside over it um yeah it it's interesting because you do have someone like Brownlow who is compassionate. And I think it's, I think there might be something to the fact that Oliver's mother was his niece, not his daughter, because I think there's something about having that distance from, it's not really your family. Um, and it same, again, I, I hate to keep bringing this back to Tom Jones, but in the 1960s, we've got two bastard movies. So we've <laughs> hard to talk to Um he, it's his, it's his uncle that, that loves him. It's like, he knows that he probably loved his sister and he's just doing the right thing. And I think that's what Brownlow is thinking. Well, you know, I had this niece that ran off. What am I supposed to do? Just let this kid go. Whereas I think if it were his own child, people would be more judgmental, like, Oh, you were a terrible parent. Well, but if you're the uncle, it's like, well, what can you do but love a child? That kind of thing. So I think even that, that aspect of the character is an intentional Distance as well that you can distance yourself from the actual actual uh, scandal to be able to be the compassionate person. But at least it shows somebody who is compassionate. Like when Oliver comes home and the the you know the, the maid hugs him. You know everybody just loves this kid again, very much like Annie. Like everybody who comes to this house loves this kid. And you know you have to have, but you only have. But but he's like one of he's the minority. You know, you're, you're it, this is sort of showing you that the entire world isn't full of no good nicks just because they were born poor but it, it, but it's also showing you and there are some upper crust people who are decent, which I think is interesting.
4: Oh oh yes indeed, for sure. And uh,
2: Rachel he's just he, you got to feel for the kid. You know, he's just been given this this lot life that he had no choice over. You know, you don't get to choose your parents, unfortunately. Um, and yeah, you know, like Sam was saying, and we, we saw this in, in Tom Jones of all things, um, that it, there's just, we're so quick to put labels on people for a lot of things that they literally have no control over. Yeah, whether it's who they're born to or their skin color or, you know, if they've got some sort of like disability or something and we just want to be able to, to slap a label on them that says other and lock them away in a closet somewhere, or put them in a box or something mm-hmm. and just be like, you know, if we don't acknowledge that the other exists then we don't have to acknowledge that there is an issue with the system and have to fix it. Other than his station where he was born, Oliver is a white, blonde-haired, I don't know if he's blue-eyed male. So, in theory, he should have a leg up. (laughs) But, you know, even in this time period, uh, you know, even just as simple as the the class system is Mm -hmm. enough to uh, tear someone down. And he's just he's you know he he gets very lucky um you know the fact that when he gets put in the basement you know and he's he's singing you know this this touching song which uh apparently Mark was not able to fake cry. So they had to put like onions under his nose right before filming, <laughs> uh, so that he would be crying. Uh, but, uh, you know, he's singing the sad song, uh, you know, and then it's like, Oh, this window that's supposed to be barred shut is not, co- Yeah, you know, the bars are loose. I'm out of here suckers. Uh, you know, <laughs> and, he uses what wits he has about him because he probably doesn't know a whole lot about the world because he's lived in this, this poor house for his entire life. Um, So, you know, he's trying to hitch a ride to get to London and nobody will stop. And finally, he has to this guy driving this buggy, apparently with a horse is kind of like autopilot, but you can actually it's you know, you can actually sleep. <laughs> <laughs> while someone else, yeah, while the horse does all the work. Um, you know, and he stumbles into this situation with the Artful Dodger and uh, Fagin. And I don't think it ever occurs to him that picking pockets is a bad thing because he doesn't know any better. So he has to learn a lot about the world really quickly. And unfortunately the lessons that he's turned taught first off are not the best lessons. <laughs> you know? He's so excited when the Artful Dodger is like, Oh yeah, you could come back with me. You know, we'll find your place to sleep and, and food and stuff. And you're know, like, Oh, this huge song and dance number, which I loved because it's really catchy, but it's like, consider yourself part of the family or part of the furniture. Yeah. You know, it's it's like, yeah, you're family here, or you may be a chair. We'll see. Depends on how productive you are, Mm -hmm. (laughs) how good you are at picking pockets, kid. So, uh, you know, the fact that he goes through all this, and, you know, we'll talk about the way this movie ends. You know, at the end, he kind of just gets this happy fairy tale at the end, but he's just kind of the same person. He's still just this young, naive, blonde haired, blue eyed, you know, waiting to go through puberty uh, kid who now just happens to be able to take a bath every now and then and not have to eat gruel.
4: <laughs> I I love that. Yeah. Funny enough, I actually looked up the, a recipe for gruel online and apparently there are quite a few. And actually, seems rather tasty. I'm sure it probably wasn't as tasty there, you know, during Victorian England, because obviously, you go online like, oh, you can put this in and this and this. And I'm like, I doubt uh, they, that in poorhouse kitchens they had those ingredients. But uh, other than that, I you know i'm right there with with all three of you um, you know earlier you guys were pointing out obviously the fact of the adults when it came to oliver almost seem character characterized or almost shall we say um parodies of adults and it made me think a lot of uh, a series of unfortunate events where the kids are almost the smartest people in the room and the adults are super dumb and i was like this is a little reminiscent of that to a certain extent and You know, from what I've heard, some people found Mark Lester's performance paired with Kathy Green's singing voice rather annoying and possibly too saccharine and sweet. But, hey, this is actually how Oliver is also in the novel. Also in the novel, he's incredibly naive and good hearted and though he's treated terribly by pretty much anybody he meets, he never changes the way he treats people. And still, I believe, tries to see the best in people You know, to your point, Rachel, where. He's pretty much the same kid he is from the beginning to the end. I think that's pretty much the way, even though he's experienced more. His attitude, I think, definitely doesn't change towards people. And I will say this both in the book and possibly even more here after the Pickle a Pocket or Two number, where Fagan is obviously telling Oliver what he and his boys do for a living and some of the comments he makes to boys, Oliver doesn't get it till he goes out for his first job with the Artful Dodger and Charlie Bates and then. It dawns on him that he's hanging out with crooks. But I suppose, you know, like you were even saying, Rachel, we can almost chalk it up to the fact that maybe he doesn't know any better. And also, you know, he's 10 years old and Mark Lester was literally 10 at the time when he was portraying this. And so to him, it is all fun and games. And I do like that, though, there are moments when Oliver does stand up for himself For example, when he attacks Noah Claypole at The Undertaker's and, of course, having the guts to slap somebody as dangerous and fearsome as Bill Sykes or, heck, even answering back to Mr. Bumble. So the kid does have some fire in him and it never ceases to amaze me that though he was raised in a workhouse and probably heard it all his life, like you were saying, Zan, he does have a very polished accent and doesn't have a Cockney accent at all. But, and funnily enough, this is the same in all film versions. They always make Oliver the, should we say, the posh kid, even though he probably has never heard anybody posh speak to him. And I guess it adds to the endearing and angelic quality of the character, and you know, like you guys were saying, Mark does very much have that very angelic face. So all in all, it did work for me, though there were moments when Kathy Green's voice jarred slightly with me, you know, seeing Mark mouth the words in where is love it did grate on me a little bit, especially when Kathy hits those very high notes, like, Wah! I'm like, no, please don't do that. So uh, it, it, was, it was, and I do, and I, you know, she does a better job than what I just did, but um, it, was, it, it, it tended to grate on me a little bit. But all in all, it was a decent portrayal of Oliver Twist. So let's uh, carry on here with our two first antagonists that Oliver has to deal with and uh, who hold the secret to Oliver's origins and who his family is. We have, of course, Harry Seacombe as Mr. Bumble and Peggy Mount as Mrs. Bumble. So, Zan, when it's starting with you, what did you make of the Bumbles?
3: Uh, they're just terrible people. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they again, they have this job with this chip on their shoulder. That they are they're better than these people who are in the workhouse. They're not necessarily, they just maybe didn't get caught for their crimes. You know, obviously she steals lockets. I mean, she's got the Miss Anigan thing going on <laughs> where if kids show up with any sort of family heirlooms, she just pockets them. And again, this is somebody who can barely even stand the taste. Of the day's gruel, but yeah, okay, bring the kids in, let's feed it to the kids, even though I know it's horrible. And just this idea that the second you, you know, you ask for more, you know, (laughs) more essentially watered down oatmeal, you're going to get kicked out in the snow. I mean, what kind of, what kind of system is this? What kind of person does this? What kind of person treats children this way? They're like a, they're like an even worse, less entertaining thenardier from Les Mis. Um, who's the master of the house character. And it's... You do have that sort of tired trope with the two of them of like, they're now in this marriage where they just don't like each other, but they're still married. So you're like, whatever, what is wrong with you people? Um, so I think you're supposed to kind of... I think there's something... That, that trope is always there to make you sort of feel sorry for the for the guy, but I just don't feel sorry for him at all. And when he's and when they're talking to brownlow about the about the locket they they still can't figure out what they did wrong they're they're still indignant about like well why should i give it to anybody i mean they they have no concept of what being a decent human being is And, again, I think this is an intentional thing on Dickens' part. You have this really horrible character treating this very innocent, angelic child like crap for no reason other than the fact that he's been conditioned to believe that anybody who isn't the same exact station as you is expendable, disposable. Even though, I mean, if you you look at... If you look at Bumble compared to Mr. Brownlow, you know, Mr. Bumble then becomes the lower class person and then therefore they become the expendable and disposable one and it just again the system's ridiculous and the fact that they're both buying into it so perfectly just makes them awful people. I you know I, I would have loved to have seen them get arrested for stealing Trinkets and heirlooms from the orphans. I think that would have been great, but of course it's not going to happen. But yeah, I just, I really couldn't stand them. And I was, I was glad that, uh, somebody told them off.
4: Oh yes, very, very much so. And they do kind of get their just desserts in the novel. And it's interesting how many of the villains here don't get any sort of, uh, should say get, um, their just desserts for what they do. Whereas in the novel Dickens makes sure to punish the bad guys. So, uh, am just putting that out there and Rachel, what did you make of the bumbles?
2: Yeah, (laughs) they're just, uh, yeah. I don't know much about the way the the system potentially worked, you know, when this story was was written, but I imagine that they're the kind of people that, like, they don't like children in general. But uh, I imagine that the system, I I, I envision that that they're working the system. Um, unfortunately how some people even do these days where like, if you foster a child, you get money from the state. So the more more kids that they have under the roof, the more money they're getting, but they're just pocketing it instead of paying it to, to have help the kids, you know, grow healthy by giving them, you know, nutrition, Mm -hmm. um, protein, they're just. Yeah, they're just pocketing it so that they can have these big old the you know, them and the governors can have these big old spreads every day. Um at least that's how I'm envisioning their motivation. <laughs> so um but yeah, it but to them the these, these kids are really they're not human beings, they're commodities is is what they are. Otherwise, you know, who in their any decent human being. I don't care who you are could walk around the snowy streets going child for sale <laughs> with a straight face and then bargaining for how much the kid is going to go for. <laughs> like he's a person. You know, he's got feelings, but no, he is just he is just a, a commodity to be traded for you know, whatever in exchange for him and you know the uh it, and it, it seems like uh Mr. Bumble is probably the dumber of the two because <laughs> you know Oliver you know gets them all upset asking for more and you know he's just ready to you know, throw the entire book at him, but then his wife is all, you know, he's like, ah, what are they going to do? And his wife is like, uh, go after the person who was in charge of him. <laughs> he's like, oh, yeah. So, but they're, they're equally dumb. Uh, just in. Common sense, really in compassion for a fellow human being and. Yeah, it is. It is kind of a shame that we don't really see them get any sort of punishment for their their actions. Um, But, you know, we can imagine that uh, maybe all the Charles Dickens stories kind of exist in kind of the same universe. So they'll end up in chains like Jacob Marley. (laughs)
4: <laughs> I like to hope so. I would love the Dickens verse then at this point. <laughs> I love that concept, Rachel. And the fact that you brought up the boy for sale uh, thing, it, it did make me think of the the Simpsons parody of that moment where you have Seymour Skinner trying to sell Jimbo. And Jimbo looks at him going, going is this legal, man? And he says, mm-hmm. oh, here and in Mississippi.
2: <laughs> well, I think it's a... Uh... Zan, because you're the the same generation as me, isn't it, there's a poem "Brother for Sale," isn't there? Is it in one of Shel Silverstein's books? Mm-hmm. Yeah, except yeah, it's, so. uh, it's sister for, sister for sale. Sister for sale. I know it was some sibling for sale.
3: <laughs> yeah, that was uh, a. <laughs> I forget which book that's in, but um, yeah, that's I completely forgotten about that. Yeah.
4: So, yeah, I mean, it definitely made me think of, of, of that Simpsons reference anyway. And James, what did you make of our two Bumbles?
0: Yeah, I, I mirror a lot of what's what's been said by Zan and Rachel. And I think something, a word that we have not used that I think is very relevant to Oliver uh, in general is we're talking about people being labeled and, and treated uh by treated um, in respects to circumstances that are beyond their control. And, and all of that really comes down to oppression and, and keeping that class divide uh, functioning so that people can be oppressed at the bottom and the people on top can, can benefit and, and live a, a happy, luxurious life. And, and the Bumbles are neither like oppressed or oppressor. They're kind of both they're not really rich enough to be the oppressive class and they're not really poor enough to be the oppressed class. So it's almost like I'm thinking of that scene with the governors who all seem so much more posh and, and well put together than the Bumbles. And, and and those are really the people at the top. And then all the Bumbles really have to control are these kids. These kids are the only people that are beneath the status of the Bumbles. And they I think going back to what we were saying earlier about um, the, the adult characters being portrayed as kind of parodies, um, as being incompetent and kind of not really from our own world as we recognize it, I think the Bumbles, and especially as they're portrayed by Harry Seacomb and and the, the actress whose name I can't recall. Peggy Mount. Peggy Mount? Yeah. Okay, and Peggy Mount. Um, just the way they're portrayed is so, it, 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 it brilliantly balances that line of, of of unreality and and not having a place in that reality Um, and i think they do a great job with it and i agree they're terrible people and i think again that's purposeful i think that was an intentional choice by the creators of the musical and the original author charles dickens Um, yeah neither oppressor nor oppressed but somehow they end up being both Mm -hmm. and yeah i think the film does a great job uh playing with that and, and beyond that, I think Harry Seacomb is a brilliant baritone. The Boy for Sale is, it, it becomes almost like like some kind of heightened comedy almost. Uh, just because he's singing it so beautifully and just the circumstance in which he's singing it and what he's singing about is so bizarre and extreme and, and cruel. Um, yeah, I think that's kind of all I have to say. I, I thought they were great. I thought they were <laughs> great villains to set the tone for a story with many villains. Oh,
4: very, very true and very, very well said indeed. And yes, I definitely admire Harry Seacomb's baritonal voice. I've actually tried to emulate that in the shower to no avail, but, but there you go. But yes, I think these two very much do deserve each other. And as many versions of the feared beadle, aka Mr. Mumble, I have seen, I definitely feel that Harry Seacomb takes the cake every time as he very much reminds me of Miss Trunchbull from Roald Dahl's novel Matilda, which will apparently soon be made into a musical as well. And I hope that Miss Trunchbull will be in the style of Harry Seacombe because I could so see that transition for those who are familiar, of course, with the novel Matilda and granted he's not possibly as menacing as the character in the book. He's incredibly entertaining and you do very much feel his authority and pompous nature whenever he's around. And obviously, he, like his wife, is solely looking out for himself and how a situation will benefit him. And he's very much respected in the community. And folks seem to literally consider him one of the most authoritative figures. I mean, he's probably not the best salesman when he's attempting to sell Oliver. And of course, when he and Mrs. Bumble are summoned by Brownlow, which is slightly different from the novel, we can see that he definitely does not hold as much sway in London as he does back home. And Brownlow is definitely not impressed. And I, I do sometimes ask myself whether Mrs. Mrs. Bumble is working against her husband or like you were saying, Zan, maybe that there's just no more love in this, in this marriage. And, Because she just, it seems like she loves to see him getting into trouble when it comes to approaching the board about Oliver's behavior and how the blame could possibly fall on him. She almost delights in it, I think. And when they approach Brownlow, I think both are thinking more about each other than how it could work for them as a couple. It's almost like, you know, oh yeah, I'm married to this guy, but I'm going to look out for myself. I'm not going to look out for him. Or, or, you know, I'm married to this gal, but I'm not going to look out for her. So it's interesting how... You know, to the point that you made, Zan, this very sort of maybe loveless marriage. Yeah, I'm stuck with this guy and I'm stuck with this gal and we're just going to make it, you know, do what we have to do. But uh, great portrayals from both uh, Peggy and Harry indeed. So let's get to the first person Oliver meets when he arrives in London. We have Mr. Jack Wilde as Jack Dawkins, the Artful Dodger. Granted, in this musical, the name Jack Dawkins is never used. He's only known as the Artful Dodger. And our listeners might know him from being in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, where he played much the Miller's son. So, Rachel, starting with you, what did you make of our Artful Dodger?
2: Actually, I think he meant, he uses his proper name when he first introduces himself. But Does then he use Jack Dawkins? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> this kid um, uh, is it, interesting the filming because he and, and Oliver, you know, as two characters spend so much time together. Yet uh, the uh Jack mm-hmm. um was fifteen when they filmed this oh, wow. and then Mark Lester was like nine going on ten, but Mark was like significantly taller than Jack, <laughs> <laughs> even though he's like six years older, <laughs> so they're having to like use like lifts and stuff uh to to try to make him look like he's you know the older and well more seasoned uh you know of the of the two boys <laughs> um I thought that was kind of funny um but uh yeah it's just the uh, Dodger is kind of like you know he's he's kind of the uh the the cautionary tale of what Oliver's life could be if he was to stay on the streets and try to survive in the same fashion. Um, Granted, he'd have to be better at picking pockets, uh, but uh, you know, with time, uh, but it's just that Dodger is just like, You know, he's, I don't know how old he's supposed to be necessarily in this film. I guess we can kind of assume that he's supposed to, his character's supposed to be at the same age. So he's, he's old enough that he should know better. He just doesn't care. He really loves the life that he's living. Um, Doesn't see the harm in, in picking pockets and stealing stuff from people and having to run from the cops and, you know, not, not bothering to even, he doesn't even seem to even possibly have a, even the thought that there may be a different life he could be living un, unlike uh, Fagin, which we'll talk about here shortly. Um, he just, he just really loves what he's doing. Um, and you kind of have to, I I don't necessarily feel sorry for him. I worry for him because it's, you know, who it's, it's only going to take a matter of time and circumstances for him to go down the road where he ends up. More like Bill Sykes. Um, And that's scary, you know, for anyone that he encounters because, you know, Bill is is extremely scary. I know we're going to talk about him, too. Um, So it's like, you know, if Dodger continues to live this life like he seems like he's going to with the way the movie ended what's to stop him from ending up like the next Bill Sykes in another 10 years, you know, and, you know, if he gets bigger, you know, <laughs> presumably, <laughs> you know, he'll grow taller and bigger and have, you know, the, the, the muscle to go with the, the brains that he already has. Cause he's wicked smart mm-hmm. to his own, and it's too smart for his own good. um. So, you know, it's just, he, he's, he's worrisome as far as the the future after this movie ends. Uh, Cause he, he could, he could, he could be so much more if he, if he ever got the notion to become an actual like legitimate, non criminal productive member of society.
4: It's true, he, he definitely could, because like you said, the kid definitely has potential. So uh, I think he, he definitely could make a better living in life indeed.
0: And James, what did you make of The Artful Dodger? I love Jack Wilde in this. Uh, he's, he's just a jolt of energy the moment he appears on screen. And the character in general is just energizes the story. We, we don't need this character. You know, like, this character could have been omitted from the narrative entirely, and everything more or less would have unfolded the way it does. Right. But but it just, the way Jack Wilde plays it, it it becomes such a necessary character, and it becomes, like, such a a central figure of of the movie and the narrative as a whole. Um, And and I wonder, too, how much screen time he has, because it doesn't seem like he's on screen a whole lot in the course of the whole film, but he's one of the most impactful presences, I feel. Mm. I don't he, know he, very much, he very
4: much is, yes, because I mean, you can really feel his presence. Like you said, he's not given much screen time, but
0: every time he's on screen, he makes it matter. He makes it matter. He is charismatic. You can't take your eyes off of him. And, and even just how the character functions, I think is very interesting. Like you have Oliver who shows up to London, who's like this rural-ish type boy, angelic little naive boy and then you have the artful dodger who's very much not naive who's very i don't want to call him jaded but he very much understands the world of adults and he is kind of himself an adult so you have that contrast between this youthful naive oliver and this kind of educated uh world knowing artful dodger and and you get this nice contrast of of their experiences and in the movie as a whole, I think, is the movie itself, the story, maybe Nick, you can uh, illuminate some of this for us too from the book, is there's so much contrast going on uh, Mm. in in the whole story. And I think think a central contrast is that contrast between Oliver and the Artful Dodger, And, and not even in terms of how they are as people, but even their appearance, right? Like you have Oliver, who's very angelic, we've been calling him, and very pure-looking. And then you have the Artful Dodger and all of the other boys, to be fair, who are grimy and very seedy characters who seem unclean and they lack that purity that Oliver has. Mm. And and even, like, musically, throughout the score, we get a lot of... um musical themes arranged in different ways and played with different instruments. And sometimes they sound dark and other times they sound light. I'm thinking of um, Where Is Love, the very first time before Oliver sings Where Is Love, that melodic theme is played out in like a lower reed instrument. And it just kind of has this like very heavy, very mournful sound to it. And then when the actual melody is sung by by the voice dub, it's very pure and light and it floats um, and soars. Yeah, so just there's always these contrasts at play. And I think The Artful Dodger is is really the, the most interesting contrast um, in the whole film, that contrast between uh, The Artful Dodger and Oliver. And it's it's so well done by Jack Wilde. I can't get enough of it.
4: Oh, he, he is a fabulous, he was a fabulous, fabulous actor. Sadly, he passed away way before his time, which I think was very, very sad. But he was just so talented. And, and you know, to your point, when you were saying about uh, in the novel when Dickens actually introduces this character, he doesn't he ever sort of calls him a child. He just calls him like a young man. And also the way he dresses is exactly the way he's describing the book. Because to your point, uh, James, he very much dresses like an adult with the top hat and the coat and everything else. So he is described, you know, even as, as Rachel was pointing out, kind of as roughly Oliver's age, but he's almost uh, had to say, maybe grow up quicker yeah because of the line of work he's in. And possibly when you work for somebody like Fagan, you pretty much lose your innocence very quickly. So he is literally an adult in a child's body. And that's the way he behaves within the book as well. And obviously he's called the Artful Dodger because the fact is, Fagin uses him a lot in the book to dodge people, i.e. shadow them, because when he wants to find out stuff about people, he sends Dodger out because Dodger is literally like a ninja. He's able to make himself completely invisible and is able to find out stuff about people, i.e. in the case of the book, and I believe it's here too, Dodger actually is the one who uh, tells Fagin what Nancy is up to and her talks with Brownlow because he is the one who's able to literally make himself invisible. He could be a character from Assassin's Creed. He's literally invisible. So so that's where where that comes from. And Zan, when it comes to you, what did you make of uh, Mr. Jack Dawkins?
3: I really like the Artful Dodger character. Um, I think there is a necessity to have another child bring Oliver into fagin's gang because if i first just met fagin and he said you know come with me to the underground where me and a bunch of other little boys are stealing things i'd be like dude back. <laughs> um but if this really friendly kid that looked around my age came up i think i'd be especially if i were oliver at this point i'd be more trusting so i do think we need a child to get oliver into the thick of the plot.
0: And I think we need a child, but it didn't have to be him, you know, it could have been no, other that no, that's, later on. Yeah,
3: that's, that's true. We just get the bonus of it being the artful Dodger, which, um, which I uh, forget which, uh, which production of it, but it was in 1964 or five. I think the artful Dodger was played by Phil Collins on stage at one time, which I think <laughs> would been perfect. Um, <laughs> And Rachel's right. He, there are two cautionary tales. Well, there's actually there's actually three. Um, you can, you know, you can you can be the artful dodger, but is the artful dodger going to grow up to be another Fagin, or is he going to grow up to be another Bill Sykes, or is he going to be something completely different? And you hope for his sake that he's going to be something completely different. That, you know, all of these <laughs> these kids are not going to grow up to be snake from the simpsons <laughs> they're gonna go completely but you know i assume that you know snake would have hung around with nelson Dolph, kearney and jimbo when he was a kid um and you know fagan fagan is talking about how you know he's gotta he's gotta retire so this box is my retirement i can't do this forever and so we're gonna need another fagan at some point but again you don't see a lot. You see a lot of old men as crime bosses, like Fagin, but you don't see a lot of old men as criminals, like Bill Sykes. So we kind of know, even before we lose Bill in this, what's going to happen to him. So, but the Artful Dodger is so good at making this seem like this great life. You know, it's you know they they live underground. They don't have a lot of rules. They sleep when they need to. They eat what they take. They take what they need. He's good at his job. And of course he is favored because of that, but Fagin's not terribly, at least in the, at least in the musical version, Fagin's not terribly cruel to these kids. Um, so if you're going to be an orphan and I'm assuming all of these kids are orphaned either from birth or at a very young age that, Hey, consider yourself at home, consider yourself part of the family. This Is a group that will take you in and hey, you know, we get what we need wink wink and unfortunately Oliver doesn't know what wink wink means yet (laughs) So, which is, you know, why when we have the pickpocket scene where Oliver's just sort of like, oh, hey, look big city Oh, wait, where'd my friends go? Oh, crap. They think I stole this wallet Um He's not fully understanding what's going on, but the Artful Dodger makes it sound so nice and You know, even when he comes in, he's like, where do I sleep? Oh, here, kid, in this basket, essentially. And, but I think the kids are just happy to be able to, you know, the artful Dodger makes it seem like the kids are just happy to have other kids that understand them, someone who's looking out for them, and the fact that they're looking out for each other. And I think that's another commentary from Dickens that, like we said, where the Bumbles are willing to turn on each other for no reason, just immediately. These kids, these ne'er-do-well pickpocket kids who, I'm sorry, if I saw a kid walk up to me in a top hat, I would expect him to be pickpocketing me. That just doesn't <laughs> seem right. Something's out of place there. It's like in uh, uh, Men in Black with Little Tiffany with the uh, advanced physics books in the in the middle of <laughs> the night. It's like something's wrong with little Tiffany. And that's the thing. It's like, okay, dude, you have an ascot and a top hat, and you're nine. I really don't understand what's going on here.
2: Um, These days, he'd just be labeled a hipster.
3: That's very (laughs) true. Yeah, he would need more of a mustache, I think. But he, but yeah, he's, these kids are looking out for each other. They are, they're trying to make sure that. When he says, do you want, even when he, when he steals those rolls, you want something to eat here? I just eat what I can, what I get, what I can find. And I don't even think Oliver noticed that he just stole it, but you know, he's they're they're, they're generous. They look after each other and even, you know, he seems so tortured when he's like, I don't know what to do. He got caught and it's He's not. I know he's not going to tell us, there's nothing we can do, but, but I don't know how to help him. And I think Jack Wilde does such a good job in this because he really does have to carry a lot of this story, especially musically, because he is one of the more gregarious characters. And, you know, he, this, this one big number, consider yourself is led by him. And it's a big number. It's the whole, pretty much the whole town gets in on it. So he does it. He does a fantastic job. And this character really does break your heart because, you know, That unless he figures out some other skill, he's going to be doing this for the rest of his life. And at worst, he's going to be Bill Sykes. And at best, he's going to be Fagan finding his own gang of children and keeping his own little box of trinkets to save for his retirement when he can't go on any further. And you don't want that for him. You you know, it's that we talked about this a little bit in West side story where it's like kind of cool to be a gang when you're in high school, but like when you're out of high school and you have to get a job, you're just kind of a dork when (laughs) you're still in a gang. And I think that's, what's going on here with the artful Dodger. It's fine right now when he's like 10, but it's going to get to the point where people are going to notice him in a crowd. And he's not going to be able to run as run as fast and duck into alleys that police can't go into. And It's gonna be the gallows if he's not careful. So he is kinda heartbreaking, but he is so he is so charming.
4: He he very much is. And let's be clear also, this is one of the coolest and badass names that Dickens ever came up with. And no surprise, it did find its way into the musical world as there were both, or they are both a garage rock duo and pop rock band by the name Artful Dodger. And I think it's a, it's such a clever, clever name and I absolutely have to hand it to Dickens for creating that. And this character interesting has stuck out so much in popular culture. I mean, he's actually had a solo team. TV show and has also had books written about him from his perspective. And folks, if you do dig this character, I strongly recommend you check out Terry Pratchett's novel, Dodger. It is so, so good if you're fans of Terry Pratchett. And in, in the way he writes, you know, stuff like Good Omens, for example, which he did co-write. If you like that kind of humor, definitely check out Dodger because he does a fabulous job in telling the, the story from Dodger's perspective. That said, I mean, though Olive, I think, may feel that Dodger is his friend. I think Dodger is kind of looking out for himself and could possibly, as Fagan points out, like you, you guys were also saying, become just like Bill Sykes when he grows up. If he's lucky to live that long in his line of work, and he's never truly concerned, I think, about Oliver, but more about what will happen to him if he loses him or if something happens to Oliver. I mean, I hate to make this very dark comparison, but he's kind of the Ghislaine Maxwell to Fagan's Epstein. I'm just (laughs) saying When it comes to taking in kids, I'm just saying, that's what made me, I was like, yep, that's Ghislaine Maxwell, but that that said, I'm just
3: going to say this one thing, Bill Sykes did not commit suicide.
4: (laughs) No, he did not. (laughs) he's he's and i mean he's not the most positive of characters but he's such a lovable rascal and i love that in keeping with the book and probably because that's just how it is dodger is forever adjusting his top hat and they actually say that in the book because it's just too big for him and i love that jack does the same thing every now and there's like oh it's falling off i have to re re put that together and he's clearly fagan's favorite son if you will there is, and uh, funny enough, in the book, it's unclear what exactly happens to him. Here, you know, obviously he just decides to stick with Fagin, where I suppose they have this almost twisted father-son relationship and they need each other. So uh, that's that's a difference in the book. But Jack Wilde is fabulous. I just love this kid to death. He was so, so good. So. As we mentioned him, let's get to the leader of the pickpockets and a man who was actually given some redemption in the brilliant Will Eisner comic Fagin the Jew, which once again I strongly suggest folks read. We are, of course, talking about the amazing Ron Moody as Fagin.
0: So, James, starting with you, what did you make of this character? You know what? I have a lot of hard times with this character, and I think it's kind of an unfair bias because he's the one that got the best actor nomination Mm-hmm. And to me, he's he's not the best actor in the movie. Okay. So I come from a place of, of biasness, I guess you could say. But having said that, I think Ron Moody does a great job with the role. I don't think he's the best actor in the movie. I think he does a great job overall, though. Um, something I really appreciate about the character as Ron Moody portrays it um, goes back to what I was saying before, kind of about this this general theme of contrast that that permeates the entire movie, is is there's there's a lot of contrast inherent to who Fagin is as a character. So like he does have that very grimy, very off putting, very grotesque almost exterior, uh, and underneath that though there is kind of a wholesomeness. There is a purity to Fagin. And Ron Moody does a a really deft job at balancing kind of the world that Fagin is a part of and that he represents, and also reconciling that with these very tender, almost kind of paternal feelings that he has for these, these boys that who can describe his relationship to them, but they're under his care, we could say, I suppose. Um, And there is kind of that one scene where um, he's looking at all of his jewels in the chest that he hides in the wall and he sees Oliver's watching him. And his first reaction is very scary and very intimidating and and aggressive and, and almost uh, punishable of, of Oliver. And then he kind of melts after that. He's, I can't remember exactly what he says to Oliver in that moment. I don't know if anyone else can jump he in was. There. He
4: was kind of like,
0: what did you see? And he was like, were you awake when I kind
4: of took the box out? And, uh, yeah. and Oliver said he just, had, he just kind of woken up when Fagin had opened the, the yeah. should we say, the little thing of jewels. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So we're expecting this like very intense scolding moment. And then, and, and because of who Fagin is and, and the role of his character and the appearance of his character, we think that's where it's going to go. We think something terrible is about to happen to Oliver in that moment and then it doesn't because there is this softness in Fagin and I and I really love that contrast and it is really beautiful how how Fagin throughout the story is almost kind of like struggles with his with his identity as the story's villain like he never really is the true villain he he's kind of set up to be that way but he never becomes that way it's he's and there's even that one song about where he's like okay I'm not going to be the villain anymore guys and then he's like maybe i am there's there's always this this uh, this duality alive within within fagin and and ron moody ron moody brings it out in in a really um heartfelt way uh, which is tricky that's hard to do that's not easy to do a lot of credit for that and and i'm curious to hear about um the jewish element of it because that was actually something i picked up on and wasn't quite sure if it was intentional or not, if if that was how he was portrayed in the original in the original story. Oh yeah, it's oh bad. yes.
4: Oh yeah. I, I will. Yeah. I will actually. I will actually enlarge upon that later. But um, um, just to give a brief brief thing here. In in the original version of the the novel Oliver Twist, Dickens only referred to him as the old Jew, and mm. uh, and apparently after he befriended the Jewish couple. And found that the Jews are not bad people. At the end of the day, he decided oh to redact this. And in the redacted version, he's referred to as the old gentleman. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So that, yeah, that. Do you goes- remember?
3: Remember when Nick said that um, Dickens actually did recant some of his anti-Semitism? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. He had a lot to recant. I mean, he it was it was not. It was not nice <laughs> the yeah. way his character was described at
4: all. I mean, one doesn't want to obviously, you know, go through it too much. But you think to yourself of characters, other characters in Dickens, like Silas Marner, moneylender, and of course uh, a very Jewish character, even Ebenezer Scrooge, probably right. a stereotype for a Jew. But that, I mean, you know, being a Jew myself, I know it was a very rampant stereotype and. Cause maybe folks had never met Jews and so they didn't know what they were like. And so they were brought up with that stereotype. I mean, obviously I'm not excusing it being Jewish myself, but I know it was a very, it was very very commonplace in Victorian England to see Jews this way. Um, but yeah, Zan, what did you make of, of this version of Fagan?
3: I actually really liked Fagan. Um, he, like James, like you were saying, he does have si- sort of a grotesque, appearance and unfortunately i think some of that comes from trying to portray him as a jew with the with the hook nose and that all that stereotypical bullshittery um but at the same time he's also he does also live under the ground with all of these little street urchins so he's dirty um but he is very you know, he seems very sort of warm with his bright colored coat and things like that. And he is taking care of these kids. You know, he's not like beating these children and forcing them to go out. He's like, Hey, come learn a trade little man. Come live with me. You know, it is, it seems more wholesome than it is when you think about it. And when you think about, like we said, with him and his box of trinkets, like, Hey, I, you know, I can't do this forever. Um, you almost think that Fagin could sing a "Wouldn't It Be Loverly" kind of a song. That he's <laughs> yeah. he had he's probably been doing this whole li- his whole life too, and now there was a Fagin before him, and there's going to be a Fagin after him, and he's just the latest in the line of Fagins. He's the Dread Pirate Fagin of this story, <laughs> and he's interested in the well-being of these kids because, and he knows that that. Bill is a loose cannon and he's like, look, that kid's not going to say anything. Well, I can't take that chance. No, trust me. Let's not, he's really trying to protect Oliver from Bill. And he's, and like you were saying, James, it's like, am I the villain? Am I not? I don't know. Let's see. How is it going to benefit me? And he, and even when he has that, you know, sort of that little song that he does at the end with the artful Dodger, like, what are we gonna do now? Let's figure this out, kid. I lost all my money and what do we do? All right, see so you and me together. So I kinda like that aspect of it, and I and I and I don't know if this is because I was just kind of dumb. Um or because they did really downplay it as well they should have, because like like we said in the novel, um the novel is pretty anti-Semitic when, yes. when it when it talks about um, Fagin. And, you know, maybe I'm just stupid in not picking it up. But I found myself forgetting that he was supposed to be the old Jew
1: hmm.
3: until he sang his song because yeah. his song sounds like it could be right out of filler on the Roof. It has that Russian folk song, Yiddish folk song feel to it.
4: It's very Eastern European. Yeah, it's
3: very Eastern European. And that, and I'm thinking, and I found myself thinking, oh yeah, like I'm not looking at him and you know, he has a big nose, but he's not like, even for a thief, he's not doing that sort of stereotypical, you know, there's a, there's a terrible slur and we, we talked about it before in, um, lost weekend. Um, that when you're bargaining with someone, you're, someone is jewing you down or something like that, trying to get a price down. Um, and we don't have that. You don't have him like overtly cheating these boys. You know, you don't, you don't see that kind of thing. You don't see a lot of, um, any of those stereotypes of the, of the, you know, the money hoarder. I mean, he is keeping some of it for himself, but it's not a big box. You know, it's not, I mean, he's not like the, the governors where he's sending these kids out to do his bidding and then feeding them nothing while he's eating, you know, giant turkey leg or something like that. Um, It's not a very big box. It's just a few things for him to have as he retires. You know, he's, it's his, it's his future, not his miserliness, I guess. Um, So there are, there are some stereotypes in there, but I found myself forgetting them and, Maybe I'm just dumb, maybe it's because I'm not Jewish, maybe it's because there were so many other aspects of his character that I was paying attention to, but I liked that they didn't play up the, hey, here's a Jew that likes money thing with him, and I I liked that that was a better, I, I think that was a better portrayal of it, and again, like you said, Nick, Dickens kind of recanted some of his anti-Semitism, and... I think this was a little bit more respectful. There there were no conversations about, you know, when's the pawn shop closed or anything, <laughs> anything that really overtly tells you that he's Jewish. And if you don't know Jewish music, if you don't know Jewish stereotypes, you don't know Jewish names, you're not going to necessarily know that about him. And even though he is quote unquote a villain in this, he's only a villain to the system. He's not a villain towards our main characters, um, he's nice to our main characters. He's trying to look after um, Nancy. He's looking after the Eiffel Dodger. He's looking after he's looking after Oliver, and he's trying to stay on Bill's good side because you kind of have to, or else it's going to end badly for you. <laughs> so he's he's I think he's really only a villain to the system because. He's just trying to he's just trying to live in this stupid system that is knocking people down and doing what he can and taking care of kids when no I mean he takes better care of these kids than Bumble does. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how how bad can he possibly be? And I think that was good that they kinda played down the I mean, if he did have a prosthetic nose, it wasn't like Anthony Quinn type <laughs> right. prosthetic nose. So, um, and again, it's, it's one of those where I'm not cringing as much as I would with other things, but I, but I know it's there and I'm, and, and I'm glad it's still there so we can have this discussion because it is a good character to have this discussion with, with, if he's supposed to be the old Jew and a villain, explain to me why. And you kind of can't because he's, he's, you know, for, for being a thief, he's a pretty good guy.
4: Very true. I mean, I will admit maybe me being Jewish myself, you know, sometimes one tends to see certain things a little bit more because you've been so, shall we say, exposed to them all your life, you know, because you're used to, you know, when you're part of the culture, you're kind of used to picking up on certain things. And I will have, I, I definitely suggest, you know, Zan, you being the, you know, a comic book person yourself if you get the chance definitely check out uh, Will Eisner's Fagin the Jew because it's so so good and uh, you know yeah, it's, a,
3: it's around the house somewhere um chris chris is actually a big fan of oliver it's one of the first movies he ever saw oh so um he saw it when he lived in india and you know he had a book and you know will eisner i mean come on <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's around the house somewhere i'll definitely have to dig it out
4: yeah, exactly. I mean, there is an Eisner Award for a reason in the comic book world, so <laughs> that's very true. And Rachel, what did you make of Fagan?
2: I really like him. You know, and it's it's it doesn't surprise me because he's in that gray area. You know, he's um, you know obviously he's a, a thief, uh, and he's teaching the next generation of thieves, um, which is. Not helpful to society at all, but he makes sure that the boys you know go to sleep um and serve some something for breakfast, gruel or moldy sausages. And gin, <laughs> and gin. Yeah, you know, well, you know the mold it, it doubles penicillin, so you know. <laughs> oh, gin. Um, and i and gin. You know, alcohol helps. You know, kill germs. So, you know, um, you know, he helps tuck Oliver into bed. <laughs> you know, and they have the you know this this song. You know this song number. As the boys are headed out, you know he's singing about how he loves them all, and you know he's not going to say goodbye because he knows he's going to see them later. And it's not like in a sarcastic way; it it genuinely comes off as he genuinely does care for these boys and wants to see them come back at the end of the day in one piece, preferably with a lot of wallets and watches in their pockets. But still, uh, he wants them healthy and happy um so and yeah, he he he's only concerned about just you know thieving unlike bill sykes who has an anger management problem and even there are times where he's you know trying to talk bill off of a ledge from you know starting to you know beat whoever you know it's like Bill you know no violence there's no need for violence and you know he questions whether he wants to continue this this life that he's leading um because he realizes that it you know long term it's not something he can maintain uh so you know, you kind of have to you kind of feel for him um then you kind of like him granted kind of pull the rug out under you at the end uh but <laughs> up until that point he seems like a the halfway decent guy he's just he's he's found a way to make a living and unfortunately it's just not legal um and He's corrupting the youth in a way, because um, yeah, you know, your ten-year-olds and your preteens probably don't need to be drinking gin for breakfast or smoking pipes, <laughs> uh, for that matter. But they're safe, they're fed, they're cared for. It's kind of hard. It's kind of hard to not. It's kind of hard to hate him. Yeah. You know, so, and I think it's a great performance. Honestly, I think I think Ron Moody does a fantastic job. I think he's the originator of this role though on stage. Yeah. And that's partially why he got the part after several people like supposedly Peter O'Toole turned it down, Dick Van Dyke turned it down supposedly. <laughs> I'm kind of glad because
4: his Cockney accent is terrible.
2: Well, yeah. Um that he goes on to do one of my favorite movies this year instead uh, <laughs> frees him up to do something else. <laughs> <laughs> I may be showing my cards a little early, but I'm just saying. Uh, so I think it, I think it's a great performance. Uh, you know, I think I think Ron Moody did a fantastic job. Um, apparently, even though even from the stage version to this, he tweaked Fagan a little so that the accent would be easier for us American (laughs) ears. Oh, uh, uh, so it wasn't quite as strong as it would have been if you had seen him on stage, you know, before that. Um, and apparently at one point, uh, Mark Lester came across him before he got in the Fagan makeup and did not recognize him at all, which I cannot blame him because I saw a picture of what Ron Moody looks like in real life. And like, yeah, I would not have recognized him either. (laughs)
1: So.
4: Well, uh, definitely have the to makeup hand it... is fantastic. <laughs> I- exactly. Definitely have to hand it to the makeup artists, indeed. Uh, and, if, if- uh
0: Jack Sparrow uh, parallels for anyone looking at Ron Moody as Fagin. Oh, <laughs> right. <laughs> I can see that. It's like, <laughs> this is the spiritual ancestor of Jack Sparrow we're watching.
4: I love that. Good point there, James, indeed. I mean, I will say... You know, coming from the Jewish perspective, Fagan does retain some of those anti-Semitic traits that are associated with Jews, and you see this in pretty much every version of Fagin. I mean, even uh, in you know other versions that I have watched, and uh, except possibly Oliver and Co. Obviously, and even. The songs that Lionel Bart wrote for him, like we will, you guys will point out, we talked about it a little bit, very much use the chords which are typical of Eastern European music, and very sort of music is associated with Jewish songs. And being Jewish himself, you know, Ron being a Jew, I, I think uh, he very much plays up to this, and uh, he 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 just, uh, and no surprise, pick a pocket or two is one of my favourite songs in this, kind of showing my hand there early. And when it comes to the character. Fagan, I mean, he's just as much a scoundrel as the other folks that um, that we come across. But, uh, all in all, I do think he does very much, uh, treat the boys very well. I mean, he is keeping aside some of the best trinkets for himself. Should he have to make a quick getaway? And he has an even bigger role in the novel when it comes to Oliver and has dealings with Oliver's half brother, who is not mentioned at all in this, uh, in, in, in this musical, because there is actually a half brother who's trying to get his hands on Oliver's potential fortune. And Fagan is kind of in there acting as a go-between in order for this to happen, because Fagan literally knows who Oliver is and uh, what Oliver would have inherited from his parents, but they totally cut this uh, from, from the musical and from many movies. Other than that, I think he does very much care for for his boys, if you will, even though I guess the diet of sausages and gin might not be the best, but hey, I guess it, I guess it works. And uh, I think, though... The running theme of these characters, and especially even in the novel, but here as well, with a few exceptions, is that everybody's incredibly selfish. And I think Fagin, yes, he, he does care for the boys, but he's also selfish in his own way, too, because of the trinkets. And, of course, in the book, his fate is definitely not as positive as in this version. As in the book, Fagin actually gets imprisoned and hanged. And there's a whole chapter dedicated to him musing over his fate the night before his execution. In of course, perfect Dickensian fashion, there's like so so much beautiful artwork of Fagin sitting in the jail cell waiting to be hanged. It's it's tragically beautiful, but uh, but yeah, that's what that's the fate that uh, that happened that uh, should we say uh, befalls Fagin in the novel, unlike here. But I love Ron Moody so much. He is Fagan to me. I mean, all the other versions that I've see that I've seen, uh, even um, an actor like Ben Kingsley, who plays this role in the Polanski version, as much as Ben Kingsley is a fantastic actor, he doesn't hold a candle to Ron Moody when it comes to Fagan. It's just, this is Ron, Ron's role. No doubt about it. So, staying with London's seedy underbelly, let's look at possibly the only positive character among our crooks. We have Shani Wallace as Nancy, who of course starred in a few horror movies after this, and Disney fans may know her for being the voice of Lady Mouse in The Great Mouse Detective. So, Zan, starting with you, what did you make of Nancy?
3: Oh, Nancy, okay, well, before I go on much further about Nancy, um. I've done this before on other podcasts, but if you are in the United States, 1-800-799-SAFE is the National Domestic Violence Hotline. If you do not feel safe, they will help you. (laughs) Poor Nancy. Oh my God. (laughs) This character breaks my damn heart. Um, I just found myself screaming at the television, listening to her song. Well, as long as he needs me, I'll put up with all... I'm like, oh my God, he's going to kill you. I mean, because of course I know that he's going to kill her. And that whole... Stockholm syndrome that abused people get, where they feel like there's no choices for them, or they feel like them staying is necessary because what will happen if I go, and it's better that I'm here and can control it. All those things that Nancy goes through as essentially an abused girlfriend are so incredibly tragic. And like most situations of abuse, this inevitably ends the way it almost always inevitably ends with her death. And she's wrapped up in this world too you know she started out as one of fagin's shoplifters and pickpockets and possibly i mean nick you can tell me if they elaborate on this in the book more but you know did she know bill when she was a child like did they grow up together and
4: they never mention it. the only thing they mention is that uh, that yeah that nancy started uh, working for fagin when she was a kid and apparently she then went on to become a prostitute
3: Right, and they—they they, you really kind of they dance around that a little bit. And this is, this is that sort of kids' movie shorthand of, prostitutes have very tight bodices.
4: <laughs> yes,
3: I think that's kind of how. I mean, we saw that we see that in Disney movies too. When you see the the ladies who work at the saloon with the really <laughs> big push-up, uh, you know, uh, um, what are those things called? They're horrible. Um,
1: oh,
4: what is it? I.
3: Those, those, the, the, uh, oh corsets, are you? Corsets, thank you. Jeez, can't think of words. <laughs> I hate corsets, therefore, I don't try, I try not to wear them. Um, you know, this push up corsets and, uh, really satiny outfits in a saloon, we all know that's the madam. And that's kind of where we are with Nancy, you know, the, the bright red dress, um, mm-hmm. the, uh, the, the, the push up, the, the very, um, bountiful bosom that she has that's that's kid movie shorthand for we've got a prostitute here yes um and i think she feels like she needs to be with bill because she knows he's going to go off the damn rails if she's not around to try and help calm him down she feels like she can help these situations of him just losing his mind like no that kid's gonna tell i gotta find that kid before you know he he really loses his damn mind by the end of this movie yeah. but also that whole tragic thing where you just want to yell out to her that baby this is not your problem this is not your responsibility this is nothing you have to worry about um get away from him let him go and just the song that she sings is just so tragic she you know this you know i've talked before about this horrible bill of goods that we've told our women since the dawn of time that they're nothing without a man and yeah young oliver reed good looking dude not gonna not gonna say he's not but he's not worth it his he's he's really a psychopath and his temper is not worth it his unpredictability is not worth it and she's so sweet she's such a sweet character looking out for the boys you know she comes first to Fagans, and you think she's going to be like Mrs. Bumble is with Bumble but with but with Bill Sykes where she comes she's like yeah Fagin it's tomorrow what did you think he was going to do like he needs his money damn it so you think she's maybe going to be a little harsher than she really is but she She's the old trope of the hooker with a heart of gold. And she cares about these boys too. She cares about Oliver. She cares about the Dodger because she knows not only is there the whole trope of the maternal instinct of the female character, but she's been these boys. She's lived this life. She knows what they're going through. She knows how hard it is. And she's out to protect them. And then, you know, as much as I don't like the Oompapa song... Um, it's not, it's not one of my favorites. I love that scene because that's her way of distracting everybody to get Oliver the heck out of there. She makes the deal to get him to safety. You know, she says, Hey, I can't, you know, she goes to Brownlow. She's like, Hey, I can't take him this far, but I can take him as far as the bridge. Meet me there at midnight. I I know where he is. You know, she orchestrates all of this at the risk of herself, ultimately fatally. And it's, I mean, it's, it's horrifying what happens to her and the way she's found by the, you know, by the river. And I don't, you know, I don't know if you guys have been downstairs by the side of the London Bridge where she is. It's not fun down there. That's the That's where the globe is. Okay. (laughs) It's not pretty so <laughs>
4: and her ending is even gorier in the book i'm just gonna say that yeah
3: yeah i did i did read sort of cliff notes of the book so um but yeah i avoided i'm i'm not a huge dickens fan i think it takes forever to say nothing in the books a lot of the time mm. and so i i kind of avoided him as much as possible but i I really feel for this character. I think for a female character at this time, especially in a musical that is mostly about men She's not bad. You know, we don't again We don't get a lot of backstory with her, but we don't get a lot of backstory with Bill Sykes either We just know that they grew up in this life Um, You know, we don't know How they got to be where they are with really anybody except Oliver and even that's kind of we just know that this guy has a niece But we don't know what happened to her We don't know what happened to the her and the guy that got her pregnant so as much as I am a, a sucker for backstory, I don't feel like we need it all that much with her because she is a, a very fleshed out character. Like I said, she starts out seeming like she's just going to be the female Bill Sykes, you know, coming to collect the money, doing the prostitute thing. But there's really so much more to her. She's so much more of a caring person and her 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 death is so unnecessary. It's because we we all know Oliver's not going to talk like Oliver. What was Oliver at the, you know, underground in the underground layer of Fagan for like two days. Like, do you think that now that he is with Brownlow, he can say here, I'll lead you back to it. I mean, he knows where the bookstore was, but is he going to be able to find that? Is he going to remember everybody? Is he going to turn in the Dodger? Like, I don't think so. We all know that Oliver's not going to do what Sykes is afraid of him doing. And you know, so her doing the right thing at the ultimate price is so sad. It's so tragic. It's almost, it, it's it's what made me the saddest in this movie. As much as I hated that Oliver was mistreated, as much as I hate this system of, okay, you're born into it, so you suck. As much as I hate all of that stuff, the fact that she became another statistic to domestic violence, which at the time wasn't necessarily illegal. I mean... The fact that he killed her and the fact that I think the uh, what he beat her with was too big. You know, we've all heard that story about how rule of thumb is the as long as it's not bigger than your thumb, you can beat your wife with it. Um, that she just didn't really have a chance. And so to me, she's really the most tragic character in this story.
4: Very well said. And, you know, as I mentioned, yeah, in the book, it's the the her death is incredibly gory because of the fact that uh, um, at the time Dickens was apparently obsessed with a murder that had happened during his time of a certain Eliza Grimwood who had been found, you know, kind of half dressed in her bed, literally kind of torn open everywhere for fans of a uh, true crime. This was obviously pre Ripper days. And this was one, of obviously the first big murders that kind of shook London of this woman being found literally in a pool of her own blood. And that's why obviously Dickens went into a lot of detail when it comes to how Nancy was murdered. But yes, here, obviously they had to sanitize it a little bit. And, uh, Rachel, what did you make of Nancy?
2: Oh, Nancy got done dirty. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I I felt so bad for her, and I just knew that her story was not going to end well. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Just, yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate that, yeah, that she's found herself in this particular situation we get the i the from the few things that are said um is she has probably gone through the same kind of path as what um the the boys with with fagin are doing now i think she says something about how she was picking pockets Mm -hmm. at the same age or younger than oliver or something like that um so uh, again, you know, kind of a cautionary tale of you you get into a unfortunately you get into a life of crime and it tends to spiral uh till you find yourself doing a lot of other things that you probably never thought you were gonna do. Um and um and then also to find yourself in this awful awful abusive relationship where she just you know this is yeah for much of this being fiction she is the poster child for you know a lot of stories where <laughs> you know a, you know a person you know mostly women unfortunately but men can be abused um but for sake of comparison uh you know women are in abusive relationships and people on the outside that have no idea what it's like are like well why don't you just leave like because you can't you can't just up and leave you're emotionally enmeshed with this person uh a lot of times you're it's not just the I- emotional part of it but it's also they can they not a, a lot of times is people so are not he's just not hunt anybody down. Yeah. That, that too. has something
3: would, on him. Like that, yeah. that's the whole thing about why we're worried for Oliver.
2: Yeah. Yeah. They're not just physically abusive, but they're emotionally abusive. They're manipulative. They'll, they'll do things like control your finances. So you literally do not have control over your own money, which you would probably need to leave. Um, You know, she is is so wrapped up in the sky's orbit that uh, that just getting up and walking away is so not easy. Which is why even just getting up and walking away to deliver Oliver to a better situation is... You know, she was taking a huge risk and unfortunately it... It you know it did not work out for her in the end. Um, so yeah, she's just it's a she's a heartbreaking character. Um, and the, I I felt so sorry for her, and I was you know it's not going to be that person that would just be like grab her by the shoulders and be like, "Girl, wake up," because she knows she knows she just does not see a way out.
4: Very true, especially I suppose maybe even in Victorian England, it was probably even harder for women to even you know kind of get out of those kind of situations. I think. Uh, you know, so. Uh, oh
2: yeah, and like e- even if she, even if she and and this guy had been like legally married, she still wouldn't have had any recourse because mm-hmm. women could not have bank accounts and they could not ask for divorce. So, you know. Yeah, and yeah. as long as he needs her, seven ways to Sunday. Yeah.
4: Mm-hmm. It's it's it, yeah. It's a very very sad situation for sure. And and James, what did you make of Nancy?
0: Yeah, I share a lot of everyone's feelings. And and just this whole conversation about people being punished for existing in circumstances that are beyond their control, and 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 how that's a form of oppression. I think Nancy really gets the short end of the oppression stick. Right, like she's experiencing not only class oppression but gender oppression and and she's in this abusive relationship where a system is not in place to support her Um, and it is devastating it's 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 the most tragic character of the story i'd agree with everyone who's said that even though there are children who are being like exploited um, in this story nancy is still the most tragic and i think kind of what feeds into her narrative being the most tragic is is obviously her death um her violent murder um but but more so the context within which the murder takes place. Like, I'm thinking of how all the villains are, are appropriately punished for, for their crimes in the story. Like, Ron Moody or Fagin, he, he loses his, his uh, retirement, basically, right? Like, his, mm-hmm. he has so much fears about aging, and his chest of trinkets is going to be what, what keeps him going until his death. Um, and then he loses it in the mud right at the end. That's mm-hmm. kind of his punishment. And uh, Bill Sykes is, is punished for committing a murder by, by also dying with his life. So in those two instances, the villains and their crimes kind of pair with each other. They match up. But then in Nancy's case, her biggest crime is assisting in the kidnapping of Oliver. And how does she pay for that? She pays for it with her life. And it kind of really highlights the discrepancy between genders and, and how not only how genders are treated in society, in Victorian society, also kind of how Charles Dickens might have considered women and how he thinks of women. But I think what really feeds into how tragic Nancy's demise is, is, is how unjust it is. Yes, she did something wrong. Yes, maybe she deserves to be punished. But the way in which she is punished is so inequitable to the male characters around her. Um, and to me, that's that's the most tragic part of her narrative.
2: Especially considering she tried to do the right thing. She tried right. to be good,
0: right? Yeah. She it's like no good stuff. deed
2: goes unpunished. Yeah. That's exactly right.
0: Yeah. So that's what I mean when she's punished is, is for that little small thing she does. And she does express remorse for it, but she still is ultimately punished. Beyond the character herself i think for me it's the best performance in the movie i think she is it's it's such a, it's a terrible thing to say she's a strong female character <laughs> and it's um it's all the more evident because she's surrounded by by men only she's the only female character but but there is a strength in her and it comes through not only in like her posture and and her glances but in her vocal quality like as long as he needs me that is powerful she has emotional power she has vocal power the way she kind of lets the air resonate into her nasal space and she keeps those that like air flowing and the 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 support she has in her diaphragm and just like the perfectly shaped vowels that she sustains it's it's in, it's incredible all those things go to communicate her inner strength and not only that but she is also kind of weak too right like she's going back this is kind of my theme of everything i'm saying there's contrasts throughout this whole movie she's she's a strong character but there is that frailty or not so much frailty but but she's a victim she's been victimized by by class oppression by gender oppression by her relationship by her upbringing she's experienced all this victimization but she still is strong and there's kind of i'm thinking of another moment too where um we see her kind of her her cunning, how smart and clever she is, and that's in the um papa scene that I think yeah. was it Sam was referencing yeah. before, where she's she knows exactly what she's doing. She's entirely in control for that entire sequence. And she keeps singing and dancing and engaging with the crowds, and she turns to look at Bill Sykes to see if he's distracted and caught up in it, and he's not. So she goes back to singing and dancing, and and every time she looks, she gets more and more panicked looking at Bill to see that, oh my god, he's not responding the way I want him to. And she still has the wits and the cunning and the smarts to to still end up getting Oliver out of there by forming like, I don't know what you want to call it, like the party train around those <laughs> sites and then like sneaks sneaks Oliver away. So there's there's so much uh, nuance in, in that performance and Shawnee Wallace just nails it it because we never... We never see it as nuance, you know, like it just exists. All of these things exist simultaneously within Nancy. The strength, the vulnerability, the desperation, the know-how. It's for me, it's the strongest performance in the movie and it's the most tragic character of the story. Very
4: beautifully put there, James. And I'm right right there with you. I mean, I have mentioned the Polanski version. And folks, if you know about Roman Polanski, it's no surprise that in that version, she's cast as much younger. And the hooker traits are very much exaggerated in that version. If you yeah. know. <laughs> yes, I'm sure to the surprise of nobody who knows what Roman Polanski got up to. But- yeah, so the surprise to no one, exactly. Exactly. So less said about that, the better. And I was actually genuinely—I wasn't genuinely shocked when I saw that I'm like, okay, roman I get it. I know what you're about. And so, yeah, if you watch that version, don't be shocked to see a much younger na- Nancy and the 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 prostitute traits really being put out there with the exaggerated rouge and everything else. Because yeah, we know Roman. But that said, as I mentioned nancy is very much the positive character i think when it comes to our criminals i think also her clothes and her hair very much show this as granted in the book it's pointed out that after having basically been taken in as a child by fagan she then resorted to prostitution to earn a living but she is the most colorful and bright character amongst a group of very dingy and dirty individuals because we see here her bright red hair the purple and red of her dress, which is very much code in my eyes, one of her obviously profession, but also that she's different from the others. And I think Nancy is very much the woman who possibly would like something better for herself and could seek it if she did not love Bill as much as she does. And she, if the, should we say Victorian system was not against her as it is because he does not deserve her in the slightest. And Nancy deserves way better And she's literally one of the few selfless characters in this to her fault as firstly to her. It's all about keeping bill happy and her desire to feel needed by somebody. And later down the line with Oliver, as she realizes that he could be one of the few urchins that can have a better life than one of crime and wants to make sure he gets it possibly also because she's touched, I think by how different he is to Dodger when we get the, um, uh, I do anything for you, moment, and the rest of the boys. And sadly, what happens to her in the book is the same here, where Sykes beats her to death. Though, if, though, as I mentioned in the book, he beats her to death and he strangles her in bed. And Bill actually feels super guilty. I mean, really, you feel guilty later about what he's done when he observes her lifeless body. And if you know, as I said, folks, read Oliver Twist if you if you feel the need to, because. That moment is just so haunting. It's probably one of Dickens' best moments, as horrifying as it is. And I definitely have to applaud Shani's performance all round. Like you were saying, James, it's between Oom um Papa and It's a Fine Life and He Needs Me. She brings these songs to life. And I've actually had her her songs on repeat. I literally bought the Oliver score way back when because I love these songs to death. So, before we get to our main villain, granted, he doesn't get too much in this, but I think we could take a glance at another of our positive characters, Joseph O'Connor, in this case, as Mr. Brownlow, who has been in tons of things, and I'm sure Zan and other Jim Henson fans will remember him for lending his voice as the narrator and also playing Erskex in The Dark Crystal. So, Rachel, starting with you, what did you make of Mr. Brownlow?
2: Uh, I mean, he seemed nice enough uh, you know and uh he um you know the the circumstances for him ending up you know kind of in Oliver's orbit i guess um i uh, you know I, i'm sure years later i'm sure they'll laugh about it <laughs> uh <laughs> Like, oh uncle, you know. It's like, oh, I remember when you almost had me sent to hard labor camp because you thought I stole your wallet? <laughs> Wasn't that <laughs> funny? Uh <laughs> next to a roaring fire while they're drinking brandy. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, no, I mean it's story. It's that's something that Dickens uh, seems to want to do is have characters over you know overlap with each other and encounter each other. Um, so um I mean he doesn't get a lot of screen time but yeah you know, he seems like a nice enough guy. Um you know and the fact that he let the bumbles off essentially scot free um I think it was too nice. Honestly, <laughs> but yeah, at this point, I think he just didn't want to press his luck. He's like, "Okay, I got the thing. I got the confirmation I needed. Get the hell out of my house and let, don't ever, you know, darken my doorstep ever again." Um. So, um, you know, and it, yeah, I mean, it's gonna, yeah, it's not necessarily gonna be the. As far as family trees are concerned, not necessarily the closest relationship, you know, uncle, great uncle, I guess, nephew. Um, But, you know, family is family. So, and uh, uh, Brownlow seems to be uh a smart guy, you know, does a lot of reading. <laughs> so uh yeah, you know, Oliver's got a, a leg up right there. Uh so I mean this I don't know, we're gonna talk about the ending here, but I mean Oliver can't really do you know considering where he was, this is a pretty good step up. I know he came to London to seek his fortune, but he found family, which I think is pretty good if not better.
4: And some sweet digs, I will say. <laughs>
2: uh-huh.
4: Yes, he definitely struck gold in that in that department. And James, what did you make of Mr. Brown though?
0: Eh, not a whole lot. Um he's he's fine. He's like he has a very specific function within the narrative and and he lives up to that function perfectly and there's kind of a parallel between him and his nephew oliver where they're both kind of passive agents in their own narrative like all all he does mr brownlow really is look at a picture and say "Huh, maybe that's my nephew (laughs) and then nancy's the one that ends up connecting all like doing all the work to get everyone together again so um he's a pretty passive character i'd say um, which I guess it runs in the family, so it's fitting. Um, <laughs> but one thing I do want to point out is not so much about Mr. Brownlow, but the fact that Megs Jenkin is wasted in the role as his maid
1: mm-hmm. uh,
0: does not sit right with my spirit. So I would just like to point out that Megs Jenkin is an incredible actress. Uh, only seven years before Oliver, she was one of the best parts of The Innocents uh, alongside Deborah, Kerr, uh, Deborah Carr. Sorry. Um, yeah, so that's, that's my takeaway from Mr. Brownlow is that his maid is should have had more screen time. <laughs> well, very well
4: pointed out, I think. And Zan, you know, knowing how much you love the Dark Crystal, what did you make of Erskex or this version of ersk in in this film?
3: I, I loved listening to him talk, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um... Yeah, there's not much to this character. Um, I, I feel like he is a cautionary tale of regret. That you can tell that he wishes that he had looked harder for his niece. And when he sees Oliver, I think that makes him really realize how much time has gone by. Right. When she's been gone and and he's just sort of like, oh, yeah, we kind of stood by and like did nothing about this, didn't we? Um, and he. For as much of a character of his stature at that time can do the right thing, he's going to do the right thing. Um, but he really could stand to be a little more. I don't want to say he's as bad as Tom Jones's uncle or <laughs> not Tom Jones's uncle, but Hugh Griffiths in Tom Jones where it's like, right. Oh, wait, you're, you're uh, not a, you're not just some, some strange bastard. Oh, okay, sure. I mean, you're still a bastard, but you're noble born. So, all right, good. Um, I think he cares about Oliver before he even figures out that Oliver is, is, is his own family. So I do like that about this character, but Again, I think that there's not much to him other than regret, really. And it would have been would have been nice to have that character used more to tell us the story of Oliver's family. Like what the heck happened? Like why who did she run off with? Like why was this so scandalous at the time? Because I don't feel like we really get that. And mm-hmm. it would have been nice if we if we'd had that.
4: Well, you know what? You, as you mentioned, uh, Dickens loving to basically go on forever about one single point in the book. It's very detailed and explained of Oliver's backstory and his heritage and where he comes from and what happened to his mom and why she got to where she was and so on. So it is, but I think they wanted to really trim the fat when it came to this musical and kind of leave all that out, which You know, it does leave us asking questions, I think, narrative-wise, for those who have not read the Oliver Twist book. But um, it is all there in the novel for those who want to find out more about that. But, uh, yeah, regretfully, it's completely lost in this. And, uh, I mean, I think it's safe to say that... uh, Nancy and Brownlow, together, of course, with Mrs. Bedwin, are the only positive and kind people in a film full of awful ones. I mean, as I would mentioned, Brownlow doesn't really get too much, like we've all said, but it seems like kindness, or uh, 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 together with maybe being passive, seems to be a trait that runs within the Brownlow family, seeing him and, of course, Oliver. And you do feel that this is possibly who Oliver may grow up to become, given the chance, when him and and Uncle Br- Uncle Brownlow, like Rachel was pointing out, are uh, next to a roaring fire sipping brandy and talking about all this. And I think he wants to see the good in everybody just like Oliver and is incredibly trusting and loving with Oliver, even though he barely knows him and at the time has no idea that Oliver is his great nephew. At the same time, he won't let himself be taken advantage of as we do see in his encounter with the Bumbles And I very much enjoyed this character, but as I mentioned, you know, for representing Oliver's better life, we could have possibly seen a little bit more of him. And once again, in the novel, he has a much bigger role compared to this. So let's get to our main villain in this film, the aforementioned Oliver Reed as Bill Sykes, who we will encounter later on our journey in Gladiator. Folks will also know him for The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, Lion of the Desert, and many, many more. So, James, starting with you, what did you make of our villain, our well, ultimate villain?
0: Yeah, he is the ultimate villain, isn't he? And it's it's kind of a profound moment when he emerges as the ultimate villain. Because we do get kind of so many villains or potential villains or mm-hmm. dangerous characters, I guess you could say in the first act of Oliver, and then it's really in the second act when Bill Sykes kind of ferociously emerges as this evil, he's just kind of evil incarnate by by the time Act two rolls around um I have very strong feelings for Oliver Reed, mm-hmm. um very good, strong feelings <laughs> um I saw. I can't remember what I saw first, but um, his, his performance in Woman in Love uh, has stayed with me, I guess we could say. Um, so, yeah, I think Oliver Reed's an incredible actor and, and what he does so great in this role. And, and I think what he does more than anybody else in the film, maybe besides Jack Wilde, is, well, that's, no, I'm going to take that back. Because <laughs> Shawnee, Shawnee Wallace has this too, but, but it's his presence just the way he presents himself on screen not the costumes he's wearing not the the makeup he has on just the raw fact of his presence is intimidating it's scary the look in his eyes is is terrifying and uh that's kind of all, that's kind of all I have to say about it. It's just Oliver Reed brings an incredible presence to the screen and the amount of fear and evil that it it brings to the film as a whole should have landed him an Oscar nomination, in my opinion. I, I'm shocked that he's, he was left out when, when Jack Wilde, who is good, but has somewhat limited screen time and, and uh, Ron Moody, who is good, but I don't think is as great as Oliver Reed, um, and he's the one that ends up getting snubbed. Um, yeah, the movie would not work without a character as evil as this.
4: Exactly, and so well played by, by Oliver Reed, indeed, and such a versatile actor, in, for sure, as we will see later down the line. And, Zan, what did you make of Mr. Bill Sykes?
3: Oh, you know I love Oliver Reed. Uh, <laughs> this is a, <laughs> this was an interesting one for me. My, um, my friend Shelley, who listens to our show, she texted me when she first started watching this movie. She said, Oliver Reed is better looking in this movie than he deserves to be. And it's true. <laughs> Oliver Reed in this movie is absolutely gorgeous. Um, we <laughs> I forget what we were watching. Probably The Brood, which is one of my all-time favorite Oliver Reed movies. Um, and Chris looked at him and said, I want to know what bar fight he got that scar in. And he literally did get that scar on his face in a bar fight. <laughs> um Oliver Reed is up there with Peter O'Toole, Richard Harris, Keith Moon, John Bonham as Britain's greatest drinkers. So he's got a lot of you know stories to tell but he's a fantastic actor that like all of those other guys, they're fabulous at what they do and he's absolutely no exception and he's been in some fantastic horror movies and Really, you know, some sometimes cheesy ones and sometimes really off the rails, like something like The Devils. Um, so, like I said at the beginning, when we started talking tonight, the idea of a G-rated movie with Oliver Reed is just weird to me. And it's, you know, at least with this, this movie still gives me the Oliver Reed that I know... But in like, the, uh, like a, in like a G-rated fashion. Because, you know, you know Oliver Reed is no, up to no damn good when you see him in a movie most of the time. <laughs> and this is no exception. Even at the very beginning, when Fagin is talking about him, about how, you know, Sykes is going to come, he's uneasy about it. You know, what's Sykes going to be like today? Is he going to be okay? Is he going to be crazy? Like, it, ah, how's this going to go today? I don't know. Um, and then we see that he's he's lived this hardened life of crime. He never got away from it. So I, I seriously doubt that he started out life as the Artful Dodger. Just jovial and kind and, hey, welcome. Everybody's welcome here. I seriously doubt that about him. But if, almost if he was... That just makes him even scarier. That this is what this world has turned him into, um, and because he is just—he's just a psychopath. Like I said, he gets that laser focus of "Oh my God, Oliver's going to tell on our whole operation." If somebody—if somebody asks him, he's going to talk. We don't know this kid. We don't know what he's about. He's going to tell on us. And there's no talking to him. There's there's absolutely no talking to him. And he's and I, I talked before about how there are certain parallels to this musical and to Annie Um, as a conscious decision on the, on the writers of Annie, they sort of took elements from everywhere, but the scene at the end when they're on the, the stairs that are falling and he's got Oliver tied around the neck and is dragging him along and um, the stairs are falling when they're trying to get to them. That reminded me a lot of the ending scene of Annie in the movie where they're on the train tracks. That are raised for to because they go over the river, so the train tracks are raised. And Miss Hannigan looks at Rooster and says, "He's really going to kill her." And that's what I thought about Bill Sykes at this point. He's really going to kill Oliver if he has to to keep him quiet. He's going to kill this kid, and that's not his usual M.O. You know, he's he's a thief, but I didn't get I didn't get the fact that he's a killer up until this point because you know we've already seen him kill Nancy, like I said, he's a thief, he's probably a rapist, and he's definitely an abuser, but I think Nancy's probably the first person he's killed, and I think that helps him go off the rails when it comes to Oliver as well, Um, and he's, he's a perfect choice for this because he is so severe in the eyes. He has those really severe deep in your soul eyes, which can be romantic, can be terrifying, can be fun. Like when he laughs his eyes laugh as well. So, but the way this character is done, is he he laughing like he's going to eat you later? Or is he laughing like because he's actually happy? and that's the that's the beauty of having oliver reed in this role because he's just so unpredictable and oliver reed as you know as we know now was also very unpredictable and i absolutely agree with james he needed the oscar nod for this for sure um i it's it's an interesting one like who are you going to like they pick ron moody as fagan and then jack wild as artful Dodger for best actor and supporting actor. But I feel like Oliver Reed could have could have been a best actor as well. I mean, best actor this year absolutely went to who it should have gone to Cliff Robertson absolutely should have won this award for Charlie. Um, but I think he definitely deserved a nod. And, I, you know, <laughs> it's you know, you you have you you also have Alan Bates nominated, who's kind of an Oliver Reed type. So it's an interesting it's interesting that he got left out of this um in all in all areas. But performance-wise, you know, after Shawnee Wallace, I think he's he sort of steals the show performance-wise, because you are so incredibly scared of him. And again, how a G-rated movie ends up with Oliver Reed getting shot and then swinging from a a beam that he's tied from a rope that he's tied around his stomach so he doesn't he doesn't fall when he tries to jump to another building. Okay, whatever 1960s if that's what the kids are into, I guess, but um he's he's scary in that cautionary tale way like kids don't live a life of crime or else you're going to grow up like Oliver Reed, not like Child catcher type scary, where he's very cartoony scary. He's real life terrifying. This is what a life of crime can possibly get you. Cautionary tale. Don't live this life. And so I can't say enough good things about Oliver Reed as this character.
4: <laughs> well, I think uh, you know I I very much agree, and I definitely hope that dear Bullseye gets a good home. Uh, that's all I'm gonna say.
3: I yes, loved Bullseye. I mean, I'm glad you mentioned him because. I love that even Bullseye is like, okay, dude, I am done with you <laughs> after he kills Nancy. Bull's like, okay, screw that. I'm out of here. I'm going to tell everybody where you are because um, there's a, Nick, there's a commercial here in the States right now mm. um, for some sort of dog treat. Um, I think it's, it's either Begging Strips or pepperoni or something like, I think it's Begging Strips, um, where it's like, your dog is your best friend, but your dog's best friend is your ex-girlfriend who has <laughs> Begging Strips. And that's kind of how this feels. It's like, yeah, you might really love Bullseye, but Bullseye really loves Nancy. So, he's going <laughs> to <be on> you.
4: <laughs> yes. So, I certainly hope that he gets a decent home because I feel really bad for poor Bullseye. So, I really
3: hope he goes home with Oliver and Brown. <laughs> I hope he goes to that house and he wears like a little bow tie on New Year's.
4: Oh, yes, right there with you. <laughs> and uh, Rachel, what did you make of our big bad?
2: Oh, this guy's scary. Okay, oddly enough, who he reminded me of, and I just—I think it's just because I have this particular franchise on the brain at the moment. He reminded me of Greyback. That's who he reminded me of. He could have modernized this and he could have been Fenrir Greyback. Um, so, anyway. Uh, <laughs> I got Harry Potter on the brain because the 20th anniversary thing was New Year's Day. So sure. Um, but um, now he's just scary, and I'm of yeah. As as frustrating it is that like the bumbles kind of get away with their jackassery, and Fagan doesn't turn a new leaf, even though he considers it several times. At least this guy got what was coming to him. there, there was no other way that this guy could end. That was gonna be satisfactory other than dead, um so yeah it's just a shame that it you know it had to cost Nancy her life first, um but yeah, this guy's just got he's he's just walking red flags for all sorts of things <laughs> um, and you know he's just he's just no good. I and, and the thing is like when he first shows up, um like he like he doesn't say anything and then when he shows up to the where Nancy is um uh like he does not speak for like the longest time. I almost thought he was gonna be silent the entire movie. <laughs>
4: the silent presence.
2: Like, yeah, like in a way that could almost be even scarier. Uh, and apparently he was supposed to have a song But they cut it because they thought it was Too out of character For him which mm-hmm. I kind of agree Yeah it's uh, perfect That'd be like Darth Vader breaking out into songs <laughs> <laughs> Right He can rap I'm cool with him rapping on that yeah. rap yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well you know Lin-Manuel Miranda does his own version Of this in like 20 years <laughs> um, That'll probably happen uh, So um, but yeah, he's just, uh, 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 uh. and not the last time we're going to talk about Oliver Reed, although it's going to be a long time before he comes, comes up again.
4: Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. Cause we'll be talking about him when a certain, uh, Australian becomes a gladiator. So that will mm-hmm. be interesting to talk about. And yeah, I agree. I mean, I think Sykes is the ultimate bad guy and, I think it's so very well done. Also, I will tip my hat to director Carol, Carol Reed to, be, to make sure we know this from his looming shadow in the alleyway to uh, Reed's Stone Cold Silence Look. It's just so well done. And I Carol thought was
3: Reed, it was, by the way, Yeah. Oliver Reed's, Oliver Reed's uncle.
4: No surprise.
3: Yeah,
4: <laughs> this this film was very much a family affair between oh, Kathy sure. Green and <laughs> and Oliver Reed working for for. But his there role. was
2: no nepotism. Oliver had to audition just like everybody else.
4: <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's right. He just
3: he's just Oliver Reed, so of course he's going to get the role because he's terrifying.
4: Exactly, and I guess uh, you know his his relative Carol's like, yeah, I'm convinced, and uh, and I thought it was a curious choice to actually make him somewhat handsome compared to other versions of Bill Sykes, as I suppose they also wanted to give a reason why somebody as you know beautiful like Nancy would actually be attracted by him, and I did have to understand how a man like Sykes seems to actually be working for Fagan, whom he could kill without a backwards look or even decides to collaborate with him. I guess it's maybe the other way around because Fagan kind of supplies Sykes with stuff, though. I guess Sykes may not be good with math, maybe. And I suppose Fagan represents Sykes's fence, if you will. And I'm assuming that the 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 Bill was another boy that was raised by Fagin and actually is mentioned in the novel. And what makes I think, a disturbing character is not only his size, but like you were pointing out, Zan, that penetrating stare, which is very much well showcased. And what is sad is how Fagan's boys look up to this man. And Fagan pretty much paints him as the gold standard in their profession in, in uh, pick a pickup, you have to pick a pocket or two. It's very much take a tip from Bill Sykes and it's crazy. And you think it's so sad that that is what they have to aspire to such a horrible and terrible man. And that's like the ultimate level, if you will, within their profession. But Oliver Reed was Fabulous in this, and listen, I definitely think the ultimate Bill Sykes from the other versions I have seen, and even as the cigar chomping mafioso we get in Oliver and Company, this is the best version of Bill Sykes to date. So let's look at how this film ended. Of course, Sykes is eventually killed by the police compared to his grislier end in the book where he literally hangs himself by accident. Fagan makes up his mind to change his ways for good. And just as he's about to walk away, a reformed character, Dodger appears from nowhere with a wallet he stole earlier, and they dance off into the sunset together, happily determined to live out the rest of their days as thieves, where we, of course, we get reviewing the situation, the reprise, while Oliver returns to Mr. Brownlow's home for good. So, Zan, what did you make of this ending?
3: Um, as much as I hated that Nancy had to die, mm-hmm. Um, I, I thought it was, was a sweet and hopeful ending, which is kind of what you have to have for this movie that is very much geared towards children. Um, I like that the Dodger and Fagan are partners at the end of this, um, because they kind of still both need each other. I mean, Dodger's still a kid. He still needs somebody that like knows how to cook. Um, Mm -hmm. And Fagan lost all of his treasures to the mud, so he needs somebody that can, can do what Dodger can do. But I feel like after going through what they went through together, the possibility of Dodger growing up to be the next Bill Sykes, I think is very unlikely. I think they're going to be like... trying to think of like almost a comedic pickpocket duo you know <laughs> that they're that they're just i can't even i can't even think of anybody in any other literature or film that would be an equivalent um, like the tramp and the kid in the the kid thank I'm- you yeah exa- exactly exactly they both they both kind of need each other they both are on the outskirts of society they are both Kind of by this at this point, Fagin, it's like, what's Fagin going to put on a job resume at this point? Like, so what you've been doing for the last forty years, sir? Well, teaching kids to pickpocket, probably you, sir. I mean, what's he going to do? You know. So and he does really just kind of, you know, pick himself up and dust himself off. You know, he reviews the situation and does what he needs to do. And so I think that's I think that's very cute. I I do love. That, you know, Oliver gets to go to the open arms of his loving family. Um, It's sort of too bad that he has to go through what he has to go through to get there. But he really does kind of have everyone rooting for him because everyone's rooting against Sykes. So no matter what anybody might have thought of this little urchin, I think they're over it now because of what they had to watch him go through. and he's not going to be around anybody that's bad mouthing his mother ever again. He's going to really learn about who she was. And I don't think he had that before. And he obviously felt a very deep loving connection to her, even though he he never really met her. So I think that's, that's great for, for Oliver. Um, again, kind of worry about the other kids, you know, where are all those other kids in the workhouse going to go? Are they just going to live in the workhouse forever? Are they just going to, Become other criminals? Are these is, is another one of these kids going to grow up to be the next Bill Sykes? And even worse, like, do do some of these kids grow up to be the Ripper or Burke and Hare or something? I don't know. <laughs> so, but you know, with our main characters, it's pretty hopeful for how sad the situation is. And like I said, I really hope that Bullseye goes to live with with Oliver. You know, because he did kind of save, he did kind of save Oliver, and you know, I really hope that you know, even after, even if Fagin leaves us, I hope that Dodger takes care of the owl.
4: Oh, that's very sweet. It's true. I didn't, I didn't, uh, I forgot about the owl. It's true. We have an owl too here. <laughs> so, yes, let's definitely a lot of love for the animals in this film, indeed. <laughs> Good point, Zan. And Rachel, were you? Uh, what did you make of the ending of this film?
2: Yeah, I mean, other than. You know, Nancy dying, uh, it's, it's not a bad ending. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of hopeful, you know, the, you know, watching Fagin being like, well, all the kids have ran off and I've lost my box of treasures, so yeah, maybe I will play it straight and see where it leads me. But <laughs> <laughs> doesn't take much to tempt him. <laughs> yeah, you know. uh, and they're they're right back at it. Him and him and Dodger, are just two peas in a pod. And you know, whatever. More power to them. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, um, you you kind of wonder though, what's what happened to all the other boys that were part of Fagan's gang mm-hmm. when they scattered. You know, are they getting up meeting up with any of them? Is the gang gonna reform, or is it just gonna be those two you know doing their thing as a just a a duo um yeah you know, um and yeah, I hope bullseye does find a a home you know he can be he can be the sandy to Oliver's annie uh <laughs> Get that dog a bath. Apparently that dog was actually like really like a good looking dog and they really had to like mud him up and do all sorts of things to make him look (laughs) like a street. Yeah. Street mutt. Uh, and apparently he wagged his tail a lot, which didn't help with the, he's supposed to be, you know, a badass next to Bill Sykes, you know? (laughs) Good dog. Yeah. (laughs) Um, you know, and like I said earlier, Oliver, all things considering, you know, he came to London looking for his fortune, but he found family. So I think he he won and hit the jackpot, I think, even bigger than he could have possibly expected. Uh, yeah. Where he uh, spent those seven days walking on the road <laughs> to finally get to London. And so uh, and the owl. Who knows what happens to the owl in real life the owl is actually kept by someone from either the cast or crew um until they realize just how messy having an owl can be um because they're not vegetarians and they don't know how to use a napkin <laughs> uh so they but they ended up finding someone that at like a zoo or something that took the owl in which um, I guess the person at the zoo or whatever. The normally they would not take animals just from like anywhere, <laughs> someplace like that. But I think because of the like the the history of the owl, uh, the the guy at the zoo bent the rules, so the the owl got to live a nice you know life, uh, in a protected location, probably eating all the mice it wanted.
4: There you go. I mean that that definitely works. And Zana I I will get back to you on this as well. But first Rachel since you know um uh you know, you were you were mentioning your thoughts on the ending. Did you have any particular favorite songs that stuck out to you in this film?
2: Um I uh, I mean I I liked Consider Yourself. I thought that was just so catchy even though it's so like if you actually pay attention to the lyrics. <laughs> it's not as because <laughs> you know, on the surface it's like, oh yeah, you know, you're you're about to find yourself your your situation a whole lot better, but not as better as you might think. Mm. But it's so catchy <laughs> 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 that you kind of can't help it. You just kind of have to ignore the fact that you know. humming along like consider yourself part of the family yeah like consider yourself part of the furniture wait a minute
4: (laughs) (laughs) okay great and James what did you think about of our ending and were there any
0: songs that stuck out to you yeah I quite enjoy the ending um particularly in how efficient it is um I'm thinking of like Les Mis or even this year In the Heights where the musical kind of reaches an appropriate ending point, And then we get like 10 more reprises afterwards. And we give each character their own little musical send off and their own nice little moment to wrap up their narrative. And Oliver doesn't really do that, which is wonderful. It's kind of, it's the narrative momentum builds us up to the death of Bill Sykes and the reuniting of Oliver with his family. And then we get a little jaunty little tune and everyone skips away into the sunset. Um, so I appreciate the efficiency of, of the ending in itself. I do also kind of not so much the, the ending specifically, but kind of the narrative near the end. I appreciate that it goes into these darker elements and, and we're left with characters who are murdered and who, who do terrible things and have terrible things done to them. And, and I appreciate that the narrative goes in that direction, but never overwhelms us or suffocates mm-hmm. us with, with that um, dread or that hopelessness, because I I can't remember if it was Xan or Rachel who said, there is a hopeful quality to the ending. Mm -hmm. And it kind of reminds me of what was happening uh, in the world, in America in 1968, where, you know, Mm -hmm. the Vietnam War was ongoing. And kind of for the first time, because of television, people were seeing images of Mm -hmm. very graphic war. And and I think earlier in nineteen sixty eight, Martin Luther King Jr. had just been murdered. Um, the shifting tides of like American culture were happening with the Hayes Code on its way out, almost out at this point. And and there was just a lot of darkness and dread in the world. And and Oliver and in the ending of Oliver, it holds space for that. It holds space for that darkness without saying the darkness is going to consume us or the darkness is is all we have there is hope in oliver and and i think that kind of reflects maybe the 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 consciousness of the american audience at the time was that there was dread but there was hope so i think it's really um Fascinating that this musical about an orphan child in Victorian London is able to hold space for that and, and capture that So I think it's a really it's an efficient ending. It's a it's a hopeful ending and and I, I For a musical. I don't think it could be more perfect than that hmm. um, And yeah. yeah, no you
1: yeah,
4: I was gonna say yeah With and uh, when it came to particular songs
0: that stuck out to you was there anything that you really enjoyed I mean, I'm a big fan of uh, the Nancy numbers. Even today I was sitting at the piano belting out as long as he needs me and like I'm Shawnee Wallace or something. <laughs> um, I, I definitely come back to the Nancy ones and and I'll throw uh, my support behind Consider Yourself as well. And I will also say yes, how the lyrics of Consider Yourself are, they sound wholesome and welcoming and inviting but they're also kind of not. Same with Oompa papa, which is all very much a, like a sexual metaphor um, it sounds like a light, cheery song, Mm-pah-pah, yeah, we're doing a waltz dance, but it's like very much about like intimate, lustful relations. Um, and I'll just say this again, that contrast that is so brilliantly recognized throughout Oliver between these like bright sounding songs that have very dark, almost insidious lyrics uh, contained in them. But I'll say, yeah, the, the Nancy numbers and uh, Consider Yourself resonate with me past the movie. Great stuff. And
4: Zan, going back to you, what were your, uh, should we say, highlights, musically speaking?
3: I actually really like reviewing the situation. Mm. Um, One thing I I found, like I said before, about these songs is that they're not terribly advanced the plot type songs. Mm. But I feel like this one really is. You know, you're really getting the inner monologue of what's going on with Fagin at the time. And I thought that it was well-performed. It goes very quickly. It's very alliterative. Um, I think that one's fun. And yeah, Consider Yourself is a catchy tune. And, um, you know, Food Glorious Food. I just, I, I hate that song. It makes me want sausage and mustard so bad. I'm like, stop <laughs> talking about food. <laughs> But that was a that's an interesting one because that's one that we sang in school when I was a kid. Um, the dairy producers of America had commercials in the eighties that were a play on this song, "Cheese, Glorious Cheese." Um, so that's a song that just is in you know indelible in the culture. It's just it's just there. It's never going anywhere. <laughs> but um, I you know consider yourself is very catchy. Um, I do anything. Um, seemingly a sweet song, but it's like, she'd also kind of do anything for Sykes, So it's a little bit tainted, I think, but mm. I really like, I really like reviewing the situation because it, it sort of makes Fagin seem like a, like an underhanded guy, but also like, there's my retirement. So I, I think it really does show you the inner monologue of him. And I think, um, I think Moody does a fabulous job with that song. So I would probably have to say reviewing the situation is my favorite.
4: Wow. Well, I have to say being a huge Moody fan, Pick a Pocket or Two is actually one of my absolute favorites from this film alongside Oompa um papa and uh, I-, I guess consider yourself as well. And just like you, Zan, you know, I was part of the choir way back when at school. And yes, we did sing Food, Glorious Food uh, as well. And uh, it's uh, it just sticks in your head. But yes, those are my absolute favorites and why I fell in love with Ron Moody's Fagan because... And plus, I, you know, it just brings, almost brings tears to my eyes thinking back of, well, you know, uh, at my grandma's house in Brighton as I was watching this and your show, she was kind of singing along with me. So, I mean, this movie has so many, you know, strong memories for me, but yeah, Pick a Pocket or Two is actually one of my absolute favorites. And yeah, as much as this is rather different, an ending compared to the book where, for example, as I said, Fagin is dead dodger's future is unknown we don't know where he is i get it and i'm okay with this version with it being different in the sense of fagan and dodger going off into the 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 sunset if you will and possibly finding a, a better life and of course oliver just like in the book going to brownlow and in the book obviously it's much more expanded on oh we're relatives and your mother was a wonderful person and all this kind of thing so I was, all in all, I was happy with it. And of course, the big conclusion of Consider Yourself kind of coming up at the end of, as the credits rolled. So I was, I was pl- pleased with this. And yeah, those are my favorite songs indeed. So let's get, if we, are with the, if we were the Academy segment... This film did win Best Picture during the 41st Academy Awards held at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion on April the 14th of 1969. Your host for the night was Nobody, as this was the second time since the 11th Academy Awards that we had a hostless ceremony. And presenting the award for Best Picture was Mr. Sidney Poitier. This film was running up against four other movies, Funny Girl, The Lion in Winter, Rachel, Rachel and Romeo and Juliet. So, Rachel, starting with you, did Mr. Twist deserve to pick Oscar's pocket, or should the situation have been reviewed in favor of one of the fellow nominees?
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think it deserved to be nominated, because uh, it is fun. It, this is a fun movie. Um, this year... <laughs> I, uh, unlike last year, you know, uh, last episode, you know, talking about the previous years where we were like, "Oh my God, this is like stacked,"
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, as far as like nominees and stuff. This, you know, if if you were talking just the nominees going into it before I'd watched everything I'd watched, I would have assumed. Well, let's say, it, it, yeah, just based on the nominees, I would have assumed that I would have gone with Funny Girl because hmm. um, I, 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 you know, because I watch, you know, I try to watch some of the nominees, the other nominees, along with our winner, um, and I tend to watch our winner last so that it's freshest. So I had watched Funny Girl before Oliver, and I really liked Funny Girl. Uh, I think Barbara Streisand is fabulous in it she's hilarious um i could see probably why the academy was um you know torn stutched in a way that she ended up tying with katherine for best actress that year um but you know just like our previous year 1967 we're definitely getting into that post Hayes code era of people pushing the boundaries in what is considered you know proper you know film and what people are willing to sit in the movie theaters to watch um and uh we're we're definitely getting more of that. The closer we, I mean, obviously we're gonna go, we're gonna swing way in the other direction <laughs> next episode. So, <laughs> yes. um, what's what's funny, you know, or you know, in a in a funny ironic kind of way, is the fact that Oliver is the f- not just the first G rated winner because this was the first year that movies had ratings. The, the nineteen sixty eight is when the MPAA ratings were instilled. Uh so it anything previously that when rated G was given that label, you know, after the fact. Um so yeah, the fact that this is rated G when, you know, there's a guy who gets shot and a you know, galley, it's beaten to the point where the guy who beats her is covered in her blood. Uh, yeah, you know, says something. Um, although I, I, another really good movie that came out this year, there's a real, like my list of like movies that I should watch for this year was so <laughs> long. It took two post-it notes. Uh, so, and I did, I still didn't have time to get to everything. Um, so yeah, i I know Sam's going to talk about, so I'm not going to touch on 2001, the space odyssey. <laughs> I, I can kind of see why people love it. I don't like it. I, it, I just, I've never liked this movie <laughs> 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 to me. It just comes off as pretentious and Stanley Kubrick just wait. You know, it's, it's a big ego stroke. You Yeah. Know for for Kubrick and I just I do not like it. Um, but um this this did get me an opportunity to actually step out of my comfort zone uh because also this year we got Night of the Living Dead uh, which I had never seen before um and um found quite interesting. Um we got uh Rosemary's baby <laughs> It was a big year for horror films. Yeah, which I had not seen uh, completely. um, And definitely is pushing the boundaries. Um, And then we get Planet of the Apes. (laughs) Uh, Which I actually really enjoyed. Uh, That was one of those movies where I'd seen most of it, just not in order. (laughs) I had seen pretty much all of it, just not sitting down in one full sitting from beginning to end. And... With um, good old Charlton Heston, who we talked about before, exactly. I mean, it's Charlton Heston. You know, it's 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 fantastic movie making. The fact that in you know the late sixties, they're able to do like the apes, like costumes and the faces, and the fact that like the mouths actually move uh, mostly properly when they talk. Like it's a it's an amazing feat of, you know, like makeup and costuming um to get that effect and it works really really well even now uh it's quite it's quite impressive um so i all i almost want to give it to planet of the apes but me being me <laughs> uh, it, uh you know how much i love musicals um. Uh, so I'm, I'm a sucker for a good musical, and there, was, there were several musicals that came out this year, like Funny Girl, um, that were really good. This was good. Uh, but I'm going to be completely selfish, like I have in the past, and will again, I'm sure, in the future. And if it was up to me, if we're going to hand out Best Picture to a musical, it's going to Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Thank you very much. <laughs> Why the hell didn't that get at least a score nomination? I know! Oh, gosh, the hell the Sherman oh. Brothers! Oh. <laughs> so thank goodness Dick Van Dyke turned down the role of Fagin for this movie, so he could do this movie instead. <laughs> oh, I'd also like to give a shout-out. It, it would never be considered, I think, for anything maybe in the animated category, but the Beatles Yellow Submarine, too.
4: Yay! Well, you know, you are you are our, our Beatles person on this uh, on this podcast, Rachel, so <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned that indeed. And, James, you often pose this question to your followers on Twitter. Now we get to actually ask you, do you think Oliver deserved to win Best Picture compared to its fellow nominees?
0: Oh, I've always wanted to be asked this question. Thank you. <laughs> Um from the nominees I would choose Oliver. Um I think it's a weak pool of nominees. Um and Oliver is is the top one for all the reasons I was kind of saying before where it I think socially and culturally it it was meaningful just with all that was going on uh in America and and just how Oliver was just entertaining. It was a diversion. And and it does a great job at that. Um, versus some of the other nominees. I like Funny Girl, too. I think Barbara Streisand in Funny Girl is better than anything that happens in Oliver. But I don't think Funny Girl as a movie uh, rivals Oliver by any means. Um, it's good. It's just not as strong as Oliver. Um, same with the costume dramas. Um, are kind of a little... I don't want to be cruel to them, but... They're not what I would pick as a best picture, and I shamefully have not seen Rachel Rachel. But I do want to make a case for what should have been the best picture winner. Mm -hmm. Um, It was Oscar eligible in 1968. Um, War and Peace, Sergei Bondarchuk's War and Peace is one of the greatest films ever made. It, sh- it won the Best International Film Oscar that year. It should have absolutely snuck into the Best Picture category for a nomination and for the win. And I would like to think that because it didn't sneak in or break through to the Best Picture category, I would like to think that that is what laid the groundwork for Z to break into Best Picture in the following year, in 1969. Um, Sergei Bondarchuk, the scope of that movie, the... Yeah, just the scope. That's <laughs> The scope of that movie is so much to wrap your head around. I can't remember which battle it is, but I think it's at the end of the second part where the camera just keeps panning out and panning out and panning out like a helicopter aerial shot. And we just see acres and acres and acres of square footage of like a battlefield and bombs exploding. And it, it, it goes on for, I don't know, it's got to be kilometers um, and just that that was filmed, that people staged that and people were able to film that. Um, it should have been recognized in Best Picture. So from the nominees, Oliver, I think, can can hold its head high. Um, war and Peace was robbed.
4: Mm. Well, great point. And thank you for bringing up Z as well, which I will have a lot to say about on our next episode. Indeed. And uh, Zan, when it comes to you, you know, you had kind of showed your hands on our previous episode when it came to this year, but yeah, obviously uh, what, what are your thoughts? Do you think Oliver deserved to take the gold standard for best picture?
3: No, I don't. Um, I definitely think that, like James was saying, it is diversion. And I think we, I, I joke around about this, that we in 1967 having In the Heat of the Night, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, Bonnie and Clyde, all of those movies, and then In the Heat of the Night is what won. I think a lot of, uh, you know, there were a lot of people saying, no, no, that's too much. Too much. Go back. Go back. Go back. Go back to the kids singing. We need, this is too hard. Um, so I think this is one last hurrah for the movie musical. Um and considering what it's sandwiched in between <laughs>
1: yeah.
3: in the heat of the night. And then of course next year is Midnight Cowboy. Um definitely this is a this is this feels like an attempt to hold on to a bygone era. Mm. Um that doesn't mean this is a bad movie. Um what I do think is that what it's nominated for, I think there are there are better choices. I would absolutely say Kubrick best director over Carol Reed. Uh Carol Reed does a great job in this movie. He does a great job of using the soundstage and the scope of the film to get everybody in. It doesn't, it does that great job of being a a grandiose musical that doesn't feel like you're necessarily watching a play. You're watching a movie musical. You're not watching a stage show. He does a great job with that, but what Kubrick does with Space Odyssey is definitely more groundbreaking, I think. 2001 A Space Odyssey, adore this movie. Um, I have kind of mixed feelings about it because I, I would have rather seen it when... For direction and visual effects, which is which it did win. Mm-hmm. Um, Oliver wins for art direction. 2001 is up for art direction also, but I'm with Rachel on this one. For art direction, should have been Yellow Submarine. Yellow Submarine is a gorgeous movie, animation we hadn't seen before, um, and just a real gem of a picture. Um... Cinematography, I would have loved to see 2001 win cinematography as well. It wasn't even up for it Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet was up, which I get I absolutely get Oliver's up for film editing, but bullet wins it Bullet gets film editing for the chase scene alone Um, so it I understand why it's getting nominated. And again, we talked about this before with its acting nominations Um, both of these actors are great, but where's Oliver Reed? Oliver Reed is absolutely the standout in this one um as for best screenplay, well, let's, let, me, let me just back up for a second. Um, I can see it winning best score of a musical, which it did. I think its only real contender, again, was Funny Girl, um, because they didn't nominate Chitty Chitty Bang Bang for score It only was nominated for song Chitty Chitty Bang Bang even though in my opinion The best song from that movie is truly Scrumptious but that's just me <laughs> <laughs> So I would have liked to have seen That as a score As Get nominated for score and I would have picked that Over over Oliver frankly um, But Honestly based on what was Nominated and Rachel's right this is A great year for science fiction and horror um, For groundbreaking stuff like 2001 and night of the living dead but also some of my cheesy favorites like barbarella and danger diabolic um it was a green slime was this year mars needs women was this year Uh, i believe destroy all monsters was this year and of course planet of the apes planet of the apes this is another movie where we're asking ourselves why did it take until 1981 to have an award for makeup effects like an annual award for makeup effects because this is it's a crime that there's not makeup effects for, for Planet of the Apes. And we will be bringing this up again when Elephant Man is nominated. Exactly. It, the Elephant Man is what turned the tide. That, mm-hmm. That's, you know, 81 is when we got it. So, um, but what... And, you know, and there's, there's... I love, 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 love Rosemary's Baby. The fact that Ruth Gordon won Best Supporting Actress is perfect for me. She's so good in that. Um... Rachel's right. Streisand is a gem in funny girl. That's, that's just, I feel like that is sort of the movie for her. My favorite Streisand movie is um, what's up doc. But when you're talking Streisand in a musical comedy, funny girl is the absolute pinnacle for her. She's wonderful in that. Um, Again, like I said, Cliff Robertson, 100% deserves best actor for Charlie. Um, and I love that Mel Brooks, this is his Oscar. He, you know, Mel Brooks has an EGOT, so that's, this is helping him get that. But out of what was nominated, my pick is what won for best score, which is Lion in Winter. I absolutely adore Lion in Winter. Um, it's one of the greatest things, and I, <laughs> I know I'm going to make some James Bond fans out there clutch their pearls, but it's, like, it's possibly the best thing John Barry ever wrote. Um, as a score... And as a historical drama, it's fast-paced, it's witty, it has some of the best acting you're ever going to see, and it teaches you a lot in a little bit of time. And you're essentially watching a dysfunctional family deal with their dysfunction on Christmas. But it just happens to be historically rooted. And it doesn't feel like... A man for all seasons type of movie Where it's not preaching at you It's not a history lesson It is this is the darker side of history This is the more private side of history This is the part of history that has homosexuality That has putting your wife in a tower So you can have a fair You know the seedier side of history And the performances are so fantastic The scene where Anthony Hopkins Reacts to Timothy Dalton Telling him, yeah, I only had sex with you Just to get what I wanted, I didn't actually love you The look of betrayal In his eyes is amazing So When it comes to performance Witty script Good pacing Good music Out of everything up this year I'm giving this to Line in Winter And I would give director Special effects To 2001
4: well, that's definitely very fair. I actually wanted to put also this um, this this um, year of the awards into uh, context as well, because this was actually one of the first uh, seasons of the awards where we had a little bit of controversy, because apparently three hours before this show aired, Johnny Carson and Buddy Hackett had actually announced in the sketch on The Tonight Show that... I Oliver- mean, he
2: is Karnak, so, you know... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah,
3: you know he's psyched. He's, he's the of prediction. Yeah, that's that's just how it <laughs> works.
4: Good, good point. Yes, exactly because they literally announced that uh, Oliver would would win Best Picture and Albertson, Jack Albertson would win it Best Supporting. It was a
2: skit. the thing is they were just they were just you know it wasn't supposed to be anything serious and but yeah it, it was uh,
4: terrible the 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 runoff if you will because the fact that uh, folks from Price Waterhouse were literally fired because of this. Because yeah. apparently they thought that people were were messing the or had let stuff leak. Because obviously, for those who don't know, Price Waterhouse historically is the one that tallies and collects the votes of the Academy, yeah. and um, at the top. And apparently, it took Price Waterhouse Cooper's thirty six years in two thousand and four to issue a press release that Johnny and uh, and of course Buddy Hackett had just made some lucky guesses, like you guys yeah. were saying. Um, but yeah, it's weird that it took them 36 years to do that. And, and funny enough, of course, Johnny Carson would then go on to host the Academy Awards for five times. Uh, so it's, it's curious, but I, I know that folks got their, literally got their, their panties in a twist over this. And I'm kind of, you know, granted, okay, it was, you know, we're talking about way back when, but I feel bad that folks had to literally lose their jobs. Those who working from Price Waterhouse oh, because yeah. of this, you know, yeah. it's, 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 it's the, the over dramatic, reaction which kind of blew my mind when i read this because like you were saying rachel you know it's it was a it it was literally a a, a skit you know and that they're just making fun of it and anybody can make predictions and you know like oh wow you know you have an insider in this and stuff so it blew my mind that uh, i said that folks had to lose their jobs over what uh, you know johnny carson and buddy hackett did but that said Mm -hmm. You know, being the second musical to be nominated alongside Oliver, Funny Girl is absolutely fantastic. I love Babs Streisand to death, and she rightfully, I think, deserved to win Best Actress in Beautiful and a Poetic Tie with Catherine Hepburn. And when you see Babs go up on the stage and kind of accept, I, I just love this woman so much. She really is a treasure and she's superb and incredibly versatile in that film as she goes from comical to angry to sad to sarcastic and, and beyond with incredible ease. And I will say, her fellow leading man, Omar Sharif, is as usual spot on and brilliant. And I can't get enough of him on screen. The Line in Winter, it does have some fabulous performances, like you were saying, Zan, outside of course from Captain, Catherine Hepburn, Peter O'Toole, and a young but very much recognizable Anthony Hopkins. I love that. And I did enjoy this continuing family drama that is the British royal family. And I would definitely put it up there with Beckett when it comes to my favorite medieval pictures thus far. Rachel, Rachel is a very odd and off the beaten path kind of picture, but I will say congrats to Paul Newman, who does a a good job in the director's chairing, toying with us with what is true and what is illusion. It kind of made me think of a, the kind of film a young and maybe inexperienced David Lynch might have done in certain aspects if he'd been given a love story proper, kind of like what happened when Tarantino did True Romance. But I still bought the story and I was a little bit confused at the end. Romeo and Juliet, okay. Okay is considered one of the best, if not the best versions of this Shakespearean tragedy and apparently influenced and impacted so many actors, singers, artists, etc. I did enjoy it and it did make me happy that my fellow Italian Franco Zeffirelli's version got nominated. But there were times when Olivia Hussey got on my nerves with her constant crying and mewling. I was like, just stop crying. Though I guess, okay, she's a 16-year-old, and I will give her major kudos. And Nino Rota, who I love so much as a composer, gave us an incredibly memorable theme. That said, I do think the right movie won, and it's still one of my all-time favorite musicals to this day. And, of course, let us not forget that we would have to wait 34 years before another musical won the best picture, which was, of course, Chicago, in 2002. So... I'm, I'm happy with Oscar, with, uh, with Oliver winning this one. OK, so let's get to ratings then. James, what do you give Oliver out of 10? Oliver
0: is a strong eight. Very fair..:. a strong A minus.: <laughs> Well, I,
4: definitely fair. Uh, Zan, what do you give this?
3: Ooh, I might be playing the Rachel role this time. <laughs> <laughs> this one gets a six for me. Um, it's not a bad movie. It's just not a movie I want to watch. You know, I don't... It, it's not like Harry Potter, where it starts out with horrible child abuse and then gets better. It just kind of continues with horrible, with horrible stuff. So it's not terribly easy to watch. Um, the... The violence towards women is very difficult for me to, to watch. The, the songs aren't catchy enough for me to be like, yeah, but still. Um, and most of where the points come from me are the performances. You're watching people do a really good job with a story I don't really want to watch all that much. Um, like I said, it's not a bad movie. It's just not mine. It's just not my particular cup of tea. And I think it's a hard sell. Um, I wonder if I'd seen it when I was a kid, if things would have been different, but now I'm looking at it and it's basically, um, a, a child abuse and domestic abuse. <laughs> so I think I think that maybe it was a little hard for me. Um, and if the the music had spoken to me more, I might be a little bit different with it. So, um, it's a, it's a very, per, it, personally, it's, it's a six. It's not, don't watch it, but you may not love this one. Because I, I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. I just didn't
4: love it. Well, totally fair. And let's get to the genuine article then, Rachel. <laughs> what do you give this one?
2: Um. Yeah, like I said, I wasn't sure going into this one, but I was genuinely um entertained by this. You know, I found parts of it uh amusing. You know, yeah, it the subject matter is is tough in some spots, but that's dickens for you i guess um and you know as as far as musical adaptations of charles dickens work it's no muppet christmas carol uh
4: <laughs> best <laughs> dickens adaptation ever best
2: yes. Dickens
3: adaptation ever
2: yep <laughs> i mean that's a solid 10 um but uh you know i thought this was i thought this was fun you know the the fact that even in the late 60s you know people are still trying to pull off these movie musicals that is a dying breed at this point um so i gotta give them props to that because it's it's actually you know despite the subject matter it's it's a fun movie and some great some great acting in it and um yeah i'm always sucker for a dog uh, so, um, and I think I'm probably going to have consider yourself stuck in my head probably for several more days. Uh, so for me, this is, this is an eight.
4: Fair. Well, I, I'm actually gonna, gonna, I guess, really, really sort of elevate this. I'm literally going to give this a nine out of 10. I suppose it might also be my bias as a kid growing up watching this movie so much. And, you know, as I mentioned before, you know, the childhood memories that I hold very dear to my heart of me and my grandma watching this. So, uh, I still enjoy it. I love Oliver Twist, the novel, All the various versions, but this to me is one of the best. It's cemented certain characters to me, i.e. Ron Moody as Fagan, Oliver Reed as Bill Sykes. So it's 9 out of 10 for me. So we talked about this film and dissected it. And should you folks wish to join us on one of our discussions or share your thoughts on the films we discuss here, you can do so by shooting us an email, goldstandardoscars at gmail.com. Once again, that magical email is at goldstandardoscars at gmail.com. If you're free to follow us on Twitter where you can find us as Oscars Gold, or on Facebook where you can find us as Gold Standard the Oscars podcast. We love hearing from you guys and we appreciate the follow and support. Also, if you'd like to hear us discuss your favorite Oscar nominees or a film that you feel deserved to be part of the Golden Conversation, you can join our website wonderful family of patrons on patreon and check out the great tears we have going on there of course you'll get to unlock our reviews of such films as the og star wars trilogy notorious michael clayton singing in the rain and many more that's patreon.com gold standard oscars a big thank you to our wonderful patrons for their support so james starting here with you you being our guest here where can folks find you when you're not in the
0: gold standard theater Oh you're too kind. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at uh, JBLikesMovies. That is my handle. My name is Classic Movie Gay at JBLikesMovies. Um or you can find my writing for Scribed Magazine at ooh I should know their website, but I think it's scribed.com, s c r i b d.com.
4: Fabulous, and uh, definitely check out James and his wonderful reviews on Scribe Magazine, they are very insightful for sure. And, Rachel, where can folks find you?
2: Well, when I'm not in the gold standard theater, you can find me with the Five Ish Fangirls Podcast, where a weekly Pop culture entertainment podcast where we talk about all things geeky and nerdy from the female perspective and we can be found pretty much wherever you find podcasts and at the fiveishfangirls.com where you can connect with all of our social media accounts and my personal ones as well. Fabulous. And Zan, what about you?
3: When I'm not here in the Gold Standard Theater, I am with our friend Charles Skaggs in either Ghostwood Forest for Ghostwood, the Twin Peaks podcast or the drunk cinema theater for drunk cinema, um, where gold standard, not gold standard, uh, Ghostwood. We discuss all things, Twin Peaks and David Lynch and all things tangentially Twin Peaks and David Lynch. Uh, we're currently doing movies that are starring Twin Peaks actors. And our next movie is going to be the Warriors as we discussed David Patrick Kelly. And, uh, I believe next time on Drunk Cinema it'll be Jurassic Park. So mm-hmm. that'll be uh that'll be a good time and I believe you're uh you're coming on vacation with us with that one, aren't you, Nick?
4: yes i am we spared no expense and i'm on my way because <laughs> i'm a big jp guy i love everything damn, damn
3: helicopters
4: <laughs> <laughs> exactly so i'm definitely forward to discussing that with you and charles for sure and when it comes to me folks uh, i do host the radio show whiskey and cigarettes where we play today's country traditional country and everything else in between for more information about that visit our website whiskeyandcigarettesshow.com podcast wise if superior movies are your speed i do host Happiness and Darkness, the superhero movie podcast, where we discuss all superhero movies under the sun. And of course, when it comes to the aforementioned Charles Skaggs, him and I can be found on the Fandom Zone podcast, where we recently wrapped up our review of Hawkeye, spoilers we definitely really enjoyed that and of course uh, on titan talk the titans podcast where we wrapped up the third seasons of titans and doom patrol and actually got to talk to some of the folks behind the scenes from both from uh, doom patrol and we had a great great time talking to those folks indeed And if you do want to follow me and all the crazy nerdy things i get up to on instagram you can find me on dj Nictogram. Speaking things to come on this show next time, we will be discussing the aforementioned 1969 John Schlesinger film, Midnight Cowboy. So James, first off, starting with you, you know, I want to, you know, on behalf of myself and my co hosts, want to thank you so much for joining us in the gold standard theater. It was a joy to have you with us and you're definitely welcome back anytime.
0: It was a joy. Please have me back. I would love to share <laughs> the talks with you all. You're a wonderful company to talk movies with. So thank you. Oh, well, the pleasure was
4: definitely ours. And Rachel and Zan, any closing thoughts before we sign off?
1: I'm uh, walking here. I'm walking here. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Very nice. Zan, anything from you?
3: Just Well, not while everybody's talking at me. I can't hear a word they're saying.
4: <laughs> <laughs> very, very well played. So, I guess folks will have a lot to talk about when it comes to our next episode. We will see you, of course, next time with Midnight Cowboy. Until then, enjoy those movies and keep that popcorn hot. Have a great start to your 2022. Ciao.